The intermediate line advises a language and concept warning for the entire show. Hi, this is Gus Lappin. I lost a big old barra today. You're listening to the Intermediate Line podcast with Chris and Balti. Enjoy it. This episode of the Intermediate Line is brought to you by Manic Tackle Project, the only company who knows fly fishing as well as you do. And Feast Brushes, Australian-made brushes and dubbing, professionally graded natural materials, plus a full shop for all of your fly tying needs at feastbrushes.com. Why would you even say that at this point in time? I don't know, man. I'm just sitting here doodling. Hey, have you uh, you noticed how it's got, started getting a little bit cooler in the mornings? Like, you know, yeah, my, my nipples are way pointy at the moment. Wow, man. This is this is recorded at night too, so you, you might be having some nipple, nipple erectile dif- dysfunction, mate. You know, yeah, so, so sensitivity. Yeah, <laughs> hypersensitivity. Yeah, 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 possibly. Yeah, it's starting to feel pretty wintry. I was out on the bay on the weekend, and it and it felt uh, it started to feel. It definitely had that that indefinable feel of uh, change of season. And um, you know, the water was quite uh, a bit bit chilly. I think it was about twenty one degrees um, where I was looking for for the tuners. And um, yeah, dude, uh, got me thinking got me thinking about fly lines and um yeah so a lot of a lot of our good fly line manufacturers are giving us an option these days of uh cold water or tropical mm. sort of lines um you have uh you have much experience running running both yeah 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 so more specifically the question i've got is uh do you have a preference for running um a cold water line in a in a tropical situation or a tropical line in a cold water situation have you ever tried that well i'm glad you asked jeff yeah i have i have got some opinions on this yep go um well i i have (laughs) i don't have strong opinions i should add before i get on that um 
Yeah. I, I have definitely used both. And one thing I haven't experienced actually with it, with Colt, like a, a temperate line, I haven't, I haven't, mm. um, I haven't got any like massively cold water lines. Uh, I should do, um, but I've got temperate lines and I've got tropical lines as well. Yeah. But I haven't noticed. I know I hear people say it all the time, but it personally, it's never happened to me where I've had, you know. And I've fished, I've fished some pretty warm climates before. Like it's, uh, you know, I fished all around the top end of Australia in in in, in summer months and um and in winter months. But I've never had a, a temperate line just go to like chewy gum, chewing gum on the deck, you know, like go super soft where it. I can feel it dragging through the guides or anything like that. I'm not not saying it doesn't happen, but um, but I tend to I tend to have a have a spread of tropical lines and um, just deal with them in winter by stretching them and stuff like that. But uh, yeah, um, uh, yeah, not nah, I'm just sort of you kind of sprung it on me, I suppose, in a way. But I have had striper lines and stuff like that, which are cold water lines, which are pretty nice as well. Um, yeah, yeah. So yeah. Yeah, no, I don't know if I answered your fucking question there, man. But um, but I guess did. I I would I would rather deal with I would probably rather deal with the coils by stretching a line out than have a line that it's too limp and go too soft in in, in summer, I suppose. So I don't know. I think it's um I think a temperate line is probably a, a pretty safe bet because some mornings, especially now, like it'll get it'll get hotter in the day, but it'll be cold in the morning. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that's a big ask of any line because, you know, you're, you're dealing with two, well, the areas we live, you're, you're dealing with probably two suitability scenarios. Well, you know, the say, for example, you're at the local dam, it's, you know, up there it could be single figures in the morning air temp. Water temp, you know, could be, you know, low 20s, high teens, something like that, depending on what time of day and where it is. And and then uh, your deck temperature is a different thing. Again, you know, like you're stripping your line onto the deck, might be spending a bit of time there. Hopefully it's not. Hopefully you're spending more time in the water. Not so much in the air. And um, But, you know, you've got three sort of scenarios there that your line, you know, you're asking it to, to perform at its best in those, um, in those three different temperature zones. Um, mm. So it's sort of funny, you know, and I... Uh, if you if you ask the same question to me, what would I prefer? I, I'd agree. Hey, Volts, would you prefer yeah. a cold water line or a, a temper or a temperate or a tropical line? There you go, mate. Just asked you. Please continue. Thanks, man. You're welcome. It's easier, considerate co-host. Eh? I'm, emo- I'm emotionally um, aware that you're emotionally. you know emotionally yeah. intelligent. You know, I realised that you were you were starting to feel uncomfortable that no one had asked you the question, and I quickly jumped in. Thank Chivalry you. is not dead, mate. You're a good man, you're noble, and you're chivalrous. Yep. Yeah. Pearl yeah. Jam wrote a song about me. It's called Better Man. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah, man. Yeah. About me. Great song, Better Man. How yeah. does it go? Can you sing us a couple of bars before we get going? No, man. I actually didn't enjoy that song, eh? Pearl, Jam's did a Pearl I. Jam. I thought yeah. all Pearl Jam was pus. Really? Yeah, there's yep. a couple of songs that did it for me, um, but you know, I think their best music was when, when Eddie was all butthurt about whatever was going on in his, in his life, and then he discovered love, and it got a bit boring for me. But yeah, he discovered. Anyway, the, uh, yeah, the, the love was with one of the Finn brothers, wasn't it? No, was it? Did you know that? Like, I think it was Tim Finn um, that he uh, he just had a complete bromance with, and you know, just about New Zealand, I believe. No, don't know about that. No, no. Anyway, look, 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 mate. This is not the uh, MTV podcast. We should move on. 
Tell us about yeah, your he, preference to cold water line, mate, and uh, temperate or tropical. Well, well, Eddie would have needed a temperate line down there in New Zealand, I reckon. And but probably uh, over in Seattle as well. You know? Yeah, yeah, mm. up there. Yeah, so uh, I did have a scenario once. It was the middle of summer. I was using uh, a tropical line. I was fishing off a off a uh, aluminium boat deck. It was just bare aluminium. It was too hot to stand on. Mm. And that that line heated up, right? Really heated up. And um, and it was um, it was a tropical line. It was uh, bonefish designation. Uh, the brand I, I can remember it, but I'm not going to mention it because it's not important. And uh, it just got too too sticky. It was sticking to the guides and sort of, you know. Um, just didn't work as well as you know when the when the line was a bit cooler, and I got around that by you know casting out, letting it sink. It was an intermediate line, and um, great name for a podcast too. Mm. And that and that line, uh, you know, spent a bit of time in in the cooler water, particularly after it got down a few feet. So we're letting it sink down a fair bit, and um, and it came in pretty well behaved. But then you know, obviously it heat, heat up again as it's stripping through the warm water and sitting on a hot deck. Um, but yeah, it got me thinking and, you know, I've heard, uh, I think we even asked Justin Duggan about what he likes down there in terms of lines in, in Sydney, which is, uh, you know, obviously a little bit cooler to South East Queensland where both of us hail from. And, uh, you know, I'm pretty sure he, he nominated, um, you know, tropical lines year round as well. Mm. Uh, Definitely my yeah. preference, that's for sure. I forgot about that. Maybe yeah. the uh, the line going soft, maybe I have experienced that, I suppose, but like... Uh, um, I just put it down to a line drying out, but you know, I don't know. And, but like me, this line, yeah, I don't know. Like it's um, you know, you can feel it over your finger when you're stripping. You know, if you particularly if you're fishing deep, you know, like when you when you might be uh stripping a lot, you know, like when you're blind casting or something like that. But um, yeah. I'll stick my rod in the water all the way to the um, you know, the, the first stripper guide just to just so I don't not not stripping dry line over my finger. Um, yeah. But you can feel it over the guides, I suppose. Maybe that's what it is. I don't, I don't know. But I've never had one go go super duper soft on me, eh? Like I, I um, you know, in yeah, in all that time, I, I can't, I just can't remember it. You know, like it, yeah, yeah. Yep. <laughs> um, but I mean, like I'm, I'm talking about standing on decks that I can't stand on bare feet with too. You know, like it's not, it's not cold. It's not, you know, it's um, I got, I got to wear shoes to to stand on the on the deck. So, I don't know. Yeah. yeah, but I mean, just stretching that line's not that hard, really. At the end of the day, it just takes it's two not. seconds to do, and it's um, and it's not hard to do, and it generally stays in shape. You know what the bigger killer is, I reckon, besides straightening line, is people have it already. It's already twisted when they put on their spool. Yeah, yeah. yeah. How know? can people avoid that, mate? What are common causes of twist? I mean, given that a fly line doesn't twist itself, you know, any Correct. twist that comes, it's it's been induced by the angler, and you know, um. There's you only know, two I'm just ways gonna... that I can think of. Yeah, yeah, you go. I'll, um, they're probably the Walking same as on mine. it. <laughs> Walking well, on yeah, it is, is, is the first one. The second one is uh, flies that spin in the air. Two yep. two massive no-nos. Yep. yep. Flies definitely shouldn't spin in the air or in the water. That's um, that's yep. a poor design fly. That uh, and walking on your line is a poor design human. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I got a I got a couple more others might find helpful. Um, uh got excessive false casting um you know some people have this sort of nervous thing most of them don't even realize they're doing it till you point it out to them you know you could be driving up to a school of tuna or you know moving between spots and they um they might even have just a little bit of line and you know they're just false casting 
just little little bits of line, just false casting along as, as they do it. They don't even realise they're doing it. They, they might be visualising in their head as they go along or, or whatever. But I noticed that um, well, that can introduce a, an element of twist into the line, particularly if there's line left on the deck. Like it, in, you know, it can um, in, induce a little bit of a uh, little bit of twist with each with each casting cycle that doesn't have all the lines shot out. That's true. Um, yeah, yeah, you can do it. Um, oh, I've never noticed that. I'd probably do that, actually. Well, especially when driving along for tunes, just so I can quickly waterhaul, you know? Yeah. Well, it's... You, yeah, there's there's people who, like, just doing it once or twice, but, but you know, if, with, if there's a waterhaul, you, you'd probably, you know, let a little bit out, I guess. But, yeah. Um, no, I mean, I'm, look... I'm thinking of one guy I knew... Um, he doesn't fly fish anymore. I'll, I'll mention it because I'm not sure if he listens to the show. His name's Justin. Anyway, Justin had this annoying habit of you'd come up to a school of, of tuna or you'd be driving, you'd be 100 metres off and he'd be, you know, he'd be sort of really keen to cast, you could tell, and, and Justin would be like flicking the, flicking the line and, you know, it had two effects. It would, The birds would see someone, you know, warming up to cast and they know what's coming, so they fucked off. And... Um, and the other thing, you know, wasn't wasn't always the best about outcome for his line. Um, so yeah, there's that. Um, and a lot of line companies will will uh, they'll have sort of videos about how to untwist in that situation, like your your form little. I've ring. never seen a video either. Actually, tell us tell us one of these untwisting tricks. I know I only got one. Yeah. What do you got? I just run it behind the boat, cut the fly yeah. off it, let the whole line out, and just run it behind the boat. Then wind it in. And it takes a twist out. Lickety split. Yep. Yeah, it, it's a great tactic. I do that too. <clears throat> and it, and there's another instance where you know how we spoke about um, you know having uh, you know surf candies that don't spin. Yeah. Um, if if you're the person who trails the fly, you know, in between just to to, to get ready for a water haul, if that flat fly is spinning while it's in the water. Oh, that's, um, that's a good point. Yeah, I didn't even think of that. Yeah, true. It's the same as doing it in the air, really. Um, mm. That's how you pull a knot up when you're casting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good way. That's it. That's yeah. That's interesting. I tell you what. There was a um, a time that I was uh, I was fishing for cod down in New England at Nick Rhodes's place, and um, we I just Pat Cohen had just come out with his fly chitter, chitter chatter, which had a um, had a chatterbait blade on the front of it, and uh, I was like, oh, this is great, and uh, I had a crack at it, and Pat tied it with a swivel on the front. And uh, I had this idea because I mean, like, it was quite new. As I'm talking, it was going back and forth with Pat with 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 um, our findings, I suppose. You know, like, I don't think I'm not sure if Pat had even caught a fish on it yet. And I told him where I was going, what I was doing, and anyway, uh, chucking it out, and man, it was massive vibration to the water, but it was spinning in the air. And Pat already knew about this, which is why he put the swivel on it. Um, yep. So I tied it. I put a photo up on the internet, and he sends me a message: no swivel. I go, nah, I got this idea that if my leader's stiff enough, you know, like hard, like hard enough material, it, it won't it won't spin. Um, but the problem was that it, it would just it would just translate through the fly line. You know, I was finding that um, at the end of my fly line, where it was towards its um, weakest part, <clears throat> it was trying to trying to work its way back first. So what I was what was at my feet at the end of a cast was uh, was really twisted. You know, but what was what was at the fly line wasn't. Um, interesting story. Tell your yeah. children. <laughs> but the fly was really twisting the fly line, <clears throat> and you, you know, although that fly was um, exceptional, 
for what it was yep. as far as you know its resistance through the air yeah um it um it's a good example of what i'm talking about i suppose um you know like as any fly would do that um you know quietly or unassumingly you know if it, if it is spinning at all that's for sure it could be the yeah, reason why like i mean it's just one knot that comes up off the floor is enough yep. to ruin your day you know particularly if you only get that one shot i mean you imagine you're fishing on the flats for whatever like that one marlin that's coming up in six foot of water you finally get your shot and uh, that fly's been trailing behind the boat all day and it's just twisted up yeah that's that's how it can happen that's for sure yeah 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 when you got those those high stake shots you know um this little line preparation you know this could be the difference between success and failure and mm. um yeah these sort of things i just wanted to circle back on one of the things you mentioned um about um stretching your line mm. um uh some some people are um you know they they don't think you should have to stretch the line and um you know personally I, I don't understand this but you know i get it um they don't for whatever reason their laziness or i don't know i don't know why actually do, but, do these same people you know do they are they like uh climate change denier type type scenario like i i my 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 line is my line is twisted on the floor but i shouldn't have to untwist it and they just deal with a twisted line simply because they're stubborn I, d I don't know man I, I can't understand like you, you spend you spend thousands of dollars and you know of, of money you know cash and and hours of time to get yourself lifestyle. in these position to get these shots right yeah and and it just takes you know an extra 30 seconds to twist your line uh, to twist to stretch your line and um, and and lay it you know neatly out on the deck ready for that shot and it can make all the difference you know um so yeah i i don't know i don't understand why you just wouldn't go that little bit extra i think it's false economy just to 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 dismiss that as an unnecessary inconvenience and your line should be it shouldn't need a stretch you know if you want to get the best performance out of your out of your line and your you know your thousand dollar rod or even your your two hundred dollar bloody rod or whatever you know you still got you just just take that little bit of extra time to, to get the best out of your gear yeah yeah not hard not hard at all man but um yeah i think uh i think coming into winter this year i'm going to start looking at a um cold water lines actually um purely because yep. i've been fishing at night last few seasons uh for the jewies and stuff uh -huh. like that um and it's you know it's it's not gonna you're not gonna get that cold morning warming up to a warm day you're kind of demanding cold temperatures the whole time from your line you know and yeah. that does you know like sometimes in the middle of winter when your hands are numb and all that sort of stuff you, you sometimes you just don't even notice that it's um it's twisting up you know like you'll be in, you'll be in ugg boots and or whatever you know just 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 um looking stylish and stuff and um <laughs> you, won't, you won't notice that you're walking on it or anything like that so i mean soft lines got to sort of help out a little bit more that's for sure yeah yeah that uh that would go really handy. Hey, um, you got any fashion tips for Ugg boots this this winter? Is there going to be a VB special edition of the Ugg boots coming out? Oh no, nah, mate. I just think that the the best thing to do is just just wear Ugg boots and not really care yeah. what other people think. You know, uh, I don't don't. I think I think the VB is implied, mate. Just because of Ugg boots, you don't need to wear a VB logo on a pair of Ugg boots, mate. Yeah, 
Yeah, that's or that's telegraphing. That's that's a that's a yuppie thing, mate. You know, that's that's people that see VB as a trendy thing. Yeah, yeah. you're not really you're not really living the lyrics there. You know, by having to have a VB logo. Yeah, on your own. Yeah. yeah, you got the Melbourne barista on one hand, and then you got the uh, the uh, Victorian beer drinker on the other. But um, yeah, yeah, I guess two so. separates of the end end of the continuum. Both Victorians, <laughs> by the way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I. Yeah. I. Maybe so. But I think. Um. I think I'm going to give that a crack this year. I'm going to get myself a. Um. A, a cold water line to. Uh. To use and see how that goes. Yeah. Cool, man. Heck yeah. Um, heck yeah. It's hard, they're hard to find, eh? Like it's. It. You find yeah. to find a cold water. Um. Like chunky taper line. It's. It's hard to find. Like they're all built for um tropical conditions, eh? Yeah, I've yeah. a lot of them like to get a to get like a um, a really an aggressive head, like a bass taper. Like bass bass taper lines are all seem to be mostly tropical, you know. Um, do, do you remember a couple of years ago I took you out and we were fishing tuna? Um, we got some long tails each. I think we had some monstered by sharks and that sort of thing. Um, that year I was running a um, a cool water striper taper uh, from Rio. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, that was a, about a 30 foot, maybe thir- between 30 and 35 foot head from memory. Mm. Look up on the specs of that. Um, and it, it behaved itself quite well in the cooler weather. Um, but yeah, it, uh, you know, that was built for the, you know, the East Coast of the USA striper run, which is a, I think cold it's water. an autumn. Yeah, 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 it's definitely a bit, cold water. Yeah, it's a cold water, cold water environment. Yeah. 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 No, I, well, often, I, I, yeah. yeah. They offer so, the same tape in, in a tropical version as well. Yeah. Yeah. If you're used to that. Tapers, that's for sure. I mean, like, those guys throw big flies for big fish, you know, bunker flies, beasts, hollow flies, all that sort of stuff, game changers. So it's yeah. um, it's a stri- striper tape is a, uh, are a good taper to look at, that's for sure. Yeah, cool. Heck yeah. Cool. Mm. Uh, yeah, hell yeah. All right, well, look, uh, you want to talk about who we got on tonight's guest just briefly without giving away the whole party? Yeah, this guy is a, uh, an Australian fishing media mogul. Um, he's, uh, oh, mate, he's, he's a motivated youngish dude. You know, he's on the right side of 50. Um, he's a very experienced fisherman. Um, he's got a lot of foresight. Um, is a fascinating insight too, hopefully, on um, on the Australian uh, fishing scene as a whole, and he's played a pretty integral role in um, in uh, this speeding up the the pace of adoption of of uh, foreign techniques and tackle into the Australian trade. And that's not just it's you know not just uh, fly tackle; it's you know it's conventional as well. Um, so who yeah, is it? Can I tell you? It is, <laughs> yeah. it is yeah. Steve, Steve Morgan from um, uh, Fishing Monthly magazines and the ABT Fishing Tournaments. Um, at heart, I know he's done a he's done a lot. Of, he's a keen fly fisherman and done a fair bit, you know, locally around southeast Queensland. He holds. Um, I'm sure we'll get into that. About yeah, that. yeah, through yep. the show. But yep. it's, uh, giving it all away. But um, but just <laughs> let you know who we got coming up next, guys. We got Steve Morgan coming up shortly. Shall we get him on? Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> okay, Tiger. <laughs> Good setup, mate. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
All right, welcome back, listeners. On the line, we've got um, Steve Morgan with us. How are you, Steve? Yeah, great, guys. That's the way. Hey, uh, those who are listening are probably um, probably uh, wondering, uh, well, they probably know who you are, for starters, and who you are is, uh, what is your role with the ABT? Are you the guy who started the ABT or just, you know, like a, one of the main organiser or, or something like that? So uh, I got me and a guy called Steve Bain started off in about 1999 back in the day. Hmm. Uh, and it was under the blessing, blessing of my publisher of the magazine at the time of Fishing Monthly magazines where I was working. I said, I want to start up this company. He said, just start it up, work a bit on any work time. The industry needs it. Go and do it. So um, so I suppose nowadays, just uh, director and owner of ABT. Okay, cool. Well, I mean, yeah. um, it, it, uh, uh, to talk about your, your fishing history, and one of the things we wanted to highlight right from the start, because people will be familiar with ABT, and it's a, it's a conventionally based, you know, dominated uh, sport uh, competition, really, but you're no stranger to fly fishing either, are you? Uh, not at all. I was I was intrigued by it. When I learned how to fish when I was a kid, my old man was a, a bait fisherman. He loved going down to the canals on the Gold Coast and catching brim on mullet gut on an unweighted hook and, you know, the art of, he always said, feed them enough line until they hang themselves and they'd swallow the bait and you'd take a bag of 20 brim home. But I, I actually learnt to fish out of magazines. And when I say fish, I mean, you know, lure and fly fish because that was always the interesting thing to me. Mm. And... Um, I went to school in the city and I'd always walk down into Brisbane city on an afternoon and talk to the guys in Brisbane city tackle. It was a real small niche sort of tackle shop. Yep. And with Harvey, the, uh, Harvey, yep. Harvey and Don, yep. the guy before him, I think was, um, was the owner of that or, or after anyway, those two guys, they were very, they were good because they let me just hang in there for like an hour going through every bit of tackle I could find. And then when I was at home, I'd read all of the, the fishing magazines, the old fishing worlds, and anything I could get my hands on, I'd just devour it. And i get all these crazy ideas about, you know, initially about maybe some live bait fishing, but then lure fishing, and then fly fishing. And if you talk about my fly fishing history, the the very first fly rod I owned, I built it myself because I would love, love to have a go at rod building. And I built it off a fiberglass blank that I bought off Don down at Brisbane City Tackle um, with a cork grip, and it was the sloppiest, it was like trying to catch a um, cast a fly line on a Jarvis Walker Black Queen rod. It was terrible. <laughs> but I'd fish that with a – I had I had a, a sink tip line at the time and I'd hack up some clousery-looking things and I'd catch flathead on them. And I thought it was it was awesome that if I could, you know, fish for half a day and catch a couple of flathead on a fly and a fly rod by myself, that was pretty good. And that was when I was probably 17, 18. So all of my fly casting, all of my fly fishing was all learned out of books – and I probably didn't even meet another fly fisherman until two or three years down the journey. There wasn't many, wasn't many around then in the saltwater, especially. Mm. Wow. Super Jeez, interesting. Yeah, cool. right. Well, yeah. I did troll up some. So I found a few old photos actually. I, you know, back in the day, catching a you catch a flathead on your fly rod, you put it on the ground, you put your fly rod on the ground, you take a photo. You know, it's like a semi lawn of death shot, but it was um, it was good because I, I found a big box of those photos before, and I thought. That was that was brave, you know, spending my pocket money on building a fly rod and learning how to yeah. cast out. If you ever try to learn it, how to cast out of a book, not watching someone, that's your yeah. own easy mission. That, yeah. that is that is truly truly challenging because nothing nothing you know in a book can can replicate the the first hand experience. You know that the the tactile backwards and forwards. You know, yeah. with the sink um, tip, they're hard yeah. to cast. Yeah, yeah, that's true. <laughs> right. I, I Steve, just indulge me here. I've, I've 
pride myself on having a sharp memory. Was one of your first articles for Fishing Monthly, a lure fishing article about fishing down at Brunswick Head with lures called Combat in the Creeks? Yeah, that was. That was one of the first articles when I was about 15 years old at school. And I was wow. always, I'd read all these magazines that said you catch brim in winter and flathead in summer. And we'd holiday yep. at a place called New Brighton, just north of Brunswick. And yep. I went down the creek there and I'd throw the lures around and I caught flathead all winter and brim all summer. <laughs> and I'm just going, don't know what's going on here. Like it's the magazine, but it, I was up the top of the river. So in summertime, the brim would like, they'd spawn down at the mouth in wintertime, but then populate the creeks in summer and the flathead were the reverse. So that was one of the first times I thought, well, you know what? You don't believe everything you read in these books. You, it's a good guide, but make it up yourself as you go along. Mm. Yeah, right. That's and that incredible. was an old Halco Combat, the lure, Australian, Australian-made moulded lure that you could catch brim and flathead on. So, uh, see, I wasn't solely a fly fisherman. It was, uh, it was a bit of bit of live bait fishing because I had an infatuation yeah. with catching giant flathead. But after I felt yep. sorry for those things, it was it was you know brim and flathead and on lure and fly like brim on little like hair hair bug creations you tie and then flat it on the clouses and the cedars and stuff like that yeah mm. right that's amazing mate that is uh it's a trip down memory lane and um and tell me uh well our listeners may or may not be aware um you've you've got quite an extensive um history of of chasing uh long-tailed tuna in uh in southeast queensland and further afield as well is that right yeah so that was one of my one of the, the first big fish that I could catch on a fly rod were, were long tails. And I had some mates yeah. in the Moreton Bay Game Fishing Club and we they'd take me out and we'd catch them on spin rods. And after, you know, once you know what you're doing, especially back in the 90s, long tails were pretty easy to catch on spin rods or poppers. The old lively Lewis fat-ass popper was a great one. You know, you catch so many of them, yeah. you take the hooks off in the end because you didn't want to fight them for half an hour. You just wanted them to blow the lure out of the water. Yeah. So yeah. My, fir- my first boat that I my first serious boat that I could chase a fish in was a 12-foot Stessel Edge tracker with a 20-horsepower Mercury on the back. And I could yeah. put that in down at Cleveland, and I could drive across the Peel Island, which is about only, what, three or four k's. And in yeah. at this this time of the year, in, in April, May, June, you'd always get yeah. the long tails coming down around the island there. And and I every, every day at uni, which was good weather, especially when I was doing my honours year where there was no set timetables, if it was blowing yeah. less than 10 knots, I was down there from dawn till lunchtime, catching long tails, yeah. catching them on fly, catching some on poppers. But I remember in one month in, in, my, in my honours year at uni, I think I landed over 40 long tails on lure and fly. And it was like, wow. that was a good month. Like, that was a good time of your life where if the weather's good, yeah. the most important thing in my life was getting out there so that I wasn't going to miss those bust-ups of tuna. <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's an amazing amazing parallel um when i was at uni in um in one of my final years actually uh doing uh that was a bachelor of business um uh, we used to get me and a mate uh toddy who i was starting to fly fish with it was every bloody thursday toddy uh he was working in, in a hospital as an orderly and um he'd go nah don't go to uni so i'd i'd skip uni and end up failing what class i had on that thursday which was accounting and um <laughs> but yeah we shit yeah we caught a lot of the long tails that um you know over over that <laughs> over that autumn but that was at the front of Bribe and he had this beat up old uh, clark barracking was for 4.1 meters yep i think it was flat bottom and it would just get hammered going around skirmish hey? oh yeah uh, yeah and that was one of my yeah. favorite places as well when it blew a big westerly the front of Bribe was a great place to pull all the bait into the beach you could catch them thrown in the back of the breakers yeah yeah, yeah. but Bribe's great yeah. in winter that's for sure mm. yeah so, Steve, you had a world record there for a while. It might still stand on long time. Oh, uh, you know what? I actually did check it a couple of years ago. It doesn't, but 
I had the oh. what, and I wouldn't claim everything for a record. I only ever claimed if they like tail wrapped or died, or you know, if yeah. I didn't think they were going to make it, or if I wanted to take it home to eat, I'd say oh, I'll as well claim it for a record. So I think I had the, yeah. I think I had the eight and ten kilo world records, and I had the six kilo record as well. But the paperwork got lost on the way to wherever it goes to to get ratified. So I was pretty wow. confident that I had all all three of those, and at the time they were between sort of, uh, ten and thirteen kilos in Morton Bay. They yeah. were sort of not. They were not epic fish, but they were decent fish out of a tinny by yourself, which is how I caught most of them. So, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. pretty cool. That's eight, eight to ten kilo uh, category would be pretty hotly contested, I reckon. Back, back then, it wasn't. I reckon when I got those ones, they were either just a token fish in there, or they were reasonably small. So, mm. but yeah, it was it was the fact if if the fish died on the way in, I wasn't going to just you know let it go or bring it in for a photo. We'd, we'd do something for it. But I I got the old certificates in some frames at home there. I'll pull them out, and when my kids get a bit lippy, I'll pull them out and say, "You have, <laughs> least, have you? Hey." <laughs> did um steve did you fish those uh those long-tailed tournaments around at the time might have been the bribey island sport fishing club one yeah i reckon i fished the inaugural one of those with robbie lockwood who was the clarence river yep. embroider guide and i don't reckon we did too well at the time i was i was always better in in you know a non-tournament situation which is ironic but but i did fish one of the sailfish fly tournaments up the sunshine coast and won it with wow. long tails and that did that i don't think that went down real well <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. I've won a tuna tournament with, with bass, Steve. Actually, oh, well, there you go. See, yeah. hey, that, you don't write the rules, you just fish what they are. Exactly. There you go. I wish you were there at the presentation, mate. It would have saved a lot of sledging. That's I, would have been, I would have been on your side, mate. No worries. I, I, I like the underdog. <laughs> I'm just happy I didn't sit around drinking piss all day. That's how I felt about That's it. Right. I, still fishing. Go I wasn't complaining. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, no, Steve. Um, yeah, I, I felt I felt like those long tail tournaments in particular, and they ended up being um, there've been four separate you know tournaments throughout Southeast Queensland, Queensland on long tails uh, over the years. Um, you know, had the Bribey Island one. There was a Harvey Bay one. Um, sunny there Coast. There was the yeah Sunny Coast one. Of course, how could I forget? Yeah. And and then the more recently uh, the Brisbane Fly Fishing Club, which is a relatively you know, younger club, it, it ran for a few years. They had one they called the Beat Off, the Brisbane Tuna on Fly <laughs> competition. And they all had very similar scoring in that, um, with with the exception of the Beat Off. Um, but you know, all the other ones valued uh, long tails at a, at a ratio of five to one over a Mac Tuna. So, like, yep. to, to beat yep. one long tail, you'd need six Mac Tuna, for example. Um, but but the Beat Off had, um, had uh, I think it was three to one. So, yep. um, yeah. Which was, well, I, 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 thought, I always thought that yeah. the back tuna were actually a little bit more difficult to hook than the long tails. They were a little bit more picky. I remember by the end of my, my long tail fishing, I was fishing quite large flies and fishing yep. them quite slowly in the school. So it was it, after you've caught heaps of them, you, you're not trying to take the 20% shots. I'd follow them around on the electric motor because I always have an electric motor and by myself there's no one to drive usually. So I would just drive until they were comfortable with me sitting basically in the middle of them and I would take that <laughs> shot. And if I used a big fly and I didn't move it quick, I'd, you know, you'd sort of you'd sort of get a better chance of hooking the bigger ones that are hanging down below. Mm, so yeah. that's one of my tactics. The other tactic in Morton Bay that I used to love was straight out the mouth of the Brisbane River. Um, on the weekdays, the trawlers would run. The trawlers wouldn't trawl on the weekends, but when they trawl, they'd often trawl up a lot of the seagrass and it would make 
sort of seagrass mats. And if you had a day that was five to eight knots of breeze and you've got these big mats of seagrass, you get all the gar would hang around the seagrass, sort of between the mouth of the river and yeah. the measured mile and north of mud there. And you'd get you'd get some of these mats, you could see there'd be one or two long tails that would be patrolling around the the grass like a beak you know and they'd come up and they'd see a garfish and they'd sort of charge it and eat it then they just cruise around and some of my best sessions were just sitting on these grass mats just waiting for this tunage you could see working his way down you know it'd be 50 meters away and 30 meters and you'd throw your fly in and it was such a gentle take compared to a normal blast in a school you just mm. you'd use quite long flies like five inch long flies just slow strip and they just think it's a garfish coming off the weed and they just sip it like a trout you see the mouth flick open set the hook and just you know get everything out of the road because that line's going. <laughs> yeah. And they were always good quality fish too. Like that was more later in winter that you'd find those big fish that start off in the Eastern Bay early in the season. And by the end of the season, they'd get nearly into the mouth of the Brisbane river. And they tended to, they seemed to get bigger as they came West. And as mm. that bait, the water cooled off and the bait came West. So that was some cool sessions during the week where you, you know, you didn't have 20 boats trying to catch them. It was just you, Fishing for one or two fish and, you know, again, it's it's sight fishing, anything which sight fishing I'm a sucker for, so. Mm. Yeah, that's right. The, that's the thing that makes Mac Tuna more frustrating sometimes is that, you know, you can see them busting up and they'd be so focused on on what they're doing, you know, it's, uh, yeah. or even even busting up when they're not even feeding, you know, like it's, uh, you know, it's, um, but Longtail will definitely uh, be more. Um, what's the word? Curious as to different different presentation, different size baits and so like that. What yep. you're doing, what you're describing there, besides the grass mats, I didn't know about that, but you know, the bigger flies sinking down, slow moving, it's still still a successful technique now. That's for cool. sure. And, and I'm sort of not, I don't really follow the fly scene that much. So, you know, mm. back in the day, we worked out the best line was, uh, I always actually used to fish them on quite a light rod and I had an 8-9 GL3 Loomis, which was fairly rugged. And I'd throw a, a, an intermediate line and I'd throw that intermediate line for long tails and I'd throw for Harvey Bay for on the flats for, for, for Goldens up at Harvey Bay. I'd use that line for nearly anything. I use it nowadays, still the same line. I still use the same line for threadies and jewies in the river. Just mm. that line which would get the, the fly just under the surface, you know, that first couple of feet of water so that when they hit it, I could sort of see them. That's mm. you know that's again that's that's the focus of what I like doing watching those fish eat the the bait. But I I don't know if there's a better line now. Like that in the magazines, it said, oh, you got to use shooting heads. The trouble with the shooting head is you'd throw it out, and then three seconds later, they're twenty meters to the right, and mm. you're not getting that line in real quick. You know, so I, I quickly ditched that idea and just went to a simple, um, like a weight forward intermediate line, and that for me was the best. And and uh, early on, I was fishing for records. I was using the right. I'd use the right leader, so if it was a record, I'd keep it. But after a while, I just resorted to I'd use some either twenty or thirty pound line, just looped in the end, and I would have the loop at the end of my fly line, and I'd have it wouldn't be tapered; it'd only be about yeah. two foot long, and that was the ideal leader for me. It's con easily controllable, yeah. um, cheap, easy to retie when you're out in the water, and it was pretty agricultural. But you know, especially when you're by yourself trying to land a tuna one up, you want to be able to grab drop your rod, grab the line and take charge of it, you know. I was going to say that that would really come in handy in that situation, you know, keeping the rod tip out of the um, – or keeping the, the leader out of the rod tip while landing a fish would, would have a lot of a lot of benefits there. Yep, that's right. And and to this day, same thing. For the threadies, I just ramp it up. It's 55-pound Schneider now and it does take yep. a bit of a toll on the – I reckon your fly line's three metres shorter than when it used to be, but, you know, <laughs> I'll, I'll still get another 10 years out of it. I don't fly fish that often. <laughs> One of, my, um, one of my scariest yeah. moments, I, I remember my second boat, I graduated out of the 3.7-inch tracker and and I actually, 
I broke that boat up at Hinchinbrook going to like Channel Rock and crazy place. Like if I did it now, you'd say I'm I'm not going to do it because it's too unsafe. But we'd put we'd put <laughs> the little boat in behind Hinchinbrook Drive all the way around the front of the island and try to catch tuna and Spaniards and trevally and stuff. This is out of a little twelve footer. Yeah. You and your mate, no one knows where you are. You haven't probably haven't got the right safety gear. I remember mm. coming back from that once we broke it on the way out. And as we're driving back in, we had like the bung out the back so the water could come in the split at the front and go back out the back bung. And, <laughs> and we came back 30 kilometres from the out sea like that. And I go, you know what? I need a stronger boat than that. So we, <laughs> a, a mate of mine and I, we, we built a boat out of a Bass Pro Shops catalogue to look like a bass boat. So it was, it was out of plate aluminium. And it looked like the American bass boats. The weight distribution was a bit all wrong. We called it the brick. It wasn't. It wasn't the most stylish boat ever. But I tell you what, in my mate still owns the boat, and in thirty years it still hasn't split. So we did a good job with <laughs> making it strong enough. But I'd put that in at Brecky Creek. I used to live at Lutwich, and I'd put it in at Brecky Creek, fill the fuel yeah. tank up, drive all the way at the mouth of the river, all the way across to the Four Beacons and the shipping channel at Tangaluma, fly fishing for long tails. And then one day, wow. I remember it was a weekday. This boat had no flotation in it either, by the way. Not one bit of flotation. If it went down, it would sink. It would hit the bottom at 10 knots, I reckon. It would sink. <laughs> so I'm out there, and it was quite a windy day, and I'm fishing I'm fishing for long tails, and I'm trying to make a long cast, and just a quarter gust of wind, and the fly was coming right back at my head, and I stuck my hand up. And, and it's about a 4 row hook in one of these deceivers just pinned me right in the meat of the, the base of the thumb, and I just go, oh, it's pretty ordinary. And I go... And my hand was sort of starting to lock up and I didn't know what to do. One of the hardest things ever to do was push that hook all the way through, using the side of the boat and like banging my hand to push the hook through. And then when it comes mm. through, it's like, and it pops when it comes out the other side, cut it yeah. out. And I, I cut it out and I put it down. I said, I feel a bit faint after that. That's a bit, that's a bit how you're going. There's blood pissing everywhere. And I go, I really got to start telling people where I'm going. Because yeah. <laughs> if it all went pear-shaped, I'd probably be still sitting on that beacon out there, you know. Yeah. Um, rugged it's uh i think i, I suppose when you're young you do all the crazy trips you walk 30 k's up the rivers you don't care about snakes you don't care about sinking you're all immortal and you know now i've got kids i suppose i'm a lot more safety conscious i never go to the spots i went in those little boats yeah in a little boat like that now I'd, I'd have to agree with that like once once kids came along it certainly changed my my uh for me my uh, my attitude towards safety even down to you know things like sun cream and you know, um, yep. you know, just when there's when there's people, you know, riding on you, but you know, coming home, then it's you know, it takes. That's right. It's not about you anymore. It's about them. So, uh, <laughs> and that's cool. It's just that Pretty. yeah, you you take a more conservative approach to your uh, to yeah. your charging. Yeah. You still no, I don't. I don't know if that's yeah. the entire thought process. It'd just be that. It, it, it seems to me, I got, I got, you know, I got family too to worry about, and I do the same thing. But I just figure that after all the years of doing stupid shit. You just start to weigh up your odds of it going pear shape, you know. How many more times <laughs> can I do this without something going yeah, wrong? You know? That's right. So it's not to be mindful of all the things seen, that you've you avoided. Know, like it was only a couple of weeks ago that young fella, you know, went out into Morton Bay in his tinny, exactly like the tinny I used to go out in. Yeah, that's and he'd fall out, you know. And yeah. and that's it's funny, it's that's that's one of the things that we brought into ABT when we started was a very strong safety focus, you know. Like I always used to go out and never tell anyone where I was going, but I always had a life jacket. And I always used to wear my, wear my kill switch on my boat. So I thought if mm. I fall out of this boat when it's going, at least it's going to stop so yeah. I can go and swim back to it, you know. Like over the years, it, I reckon that 95% of people don't wear their kill switch in their boat and probably half of the fatalities you've heard of in the last couple of years could have been resolved if people were just wearing their kill switch. So that's that's one thing when we started ABT we were very anal about. You've always got to be wearing your PFD when you're going. 
and you've got to keep the kill switch on. Like that's that's it's like not wearing a seatbelt in a car. That's how stupid it is to not wear it. I reckon. Yeah, that's yeah. a really really good point, particularly poignant at the moment, as you pointed out, with you know um, unfortunate disappoint uh, disappearance of, of Trent. Yeah. Um, hey, Steve, just circling back around to something touched on briefly there. Um, I know you've put a lot of time into um, you know an I won't say an emerging fly um, fly fishery, but the Brisbane River. I mean, it's it's been there for a long time, and you know, um, comparatively speaking, the the jewies and the, and the threadies have have sort of risen in um, popularity. Um, without giving away too many secrets, what um, you know, can you outline your activities there, mate? What do you what do you get up? Yeah, to? so it's it's a seasonal sort of thing, and and it's not as good now as it was probably five or six years ago. Um, it's a real right. cyclical thing, I think. After the 2011 and 2013 floods, those big floods, I think you get very good recruitment of threadies and mulloway. Um, I think yep. they both spawn in the summer. And if and I think they spawn every year, but if you get a good flood, you, the survival of those recruits is really, really good. So come yep. 20, I started doing it in the probably 2013, 2014. I had an incident at work where I didn't have a boat and a car anymore. And I, all I had was a push bike. And I said, okay, well, I'm going to learn me local. I'm going to learn the local river. And, um, in a couple of years, I went from not knowing what I was doing to the best year I caught just over 250 in a year off the bank mainly. Um, wow. And that was that was probably a third of them on fly and two-thirds of them on lures. And it's a cool fishery because a thready is a fish designed to mooch on the bottom in a muddy river and suck up prawns. I think that's what they're designed to do. But at certain times of the year when those prawns are moving down the river, and that's sort of, for me, it's... March, April, May, that's when the, the prawns are moving. The threadies will come up and and feed under the lights. And as the prawn comes through, this retarded thready that's trying to eat with an underslung mouth is trying to eat prawns off the top. Yeah. And later in the season, say, when it gets cold, as soon as you've got to start putting jumpers on, that's when the dewies start turning up. And they, they follow up a, a cohort of um, little river herrings, the Brisbane River. They sort of look like a a cross between a herring and a frogmouth pilchard that come up the river. And if you get a strong run of those bait, you get those bay dewies sort of coming up the river as well. So you have this really magic time in sort of May, June, where you can go out. And I've had nights where on fly I've caught over and tagged over 10 threadies and dewies, every single one of them you're basically side casting to. And it's from a variety of locations. There's probably 25 spots on the bank in the Brisbane River where I've caught fish on fly, like threadies and dewies and, and good ones. I, my best one I've landed in the river is a 117-centimetre thread fin on wow. fly off the bank. And that's cool for the middle of a, of a, a major city. Now, the after the floods, you get those cohorts of fish coming through. So by 2015, 16, 17, there was really good numbers of high 70s, 80s, 90-centimetre fish. Then as those fish grow up, they leave the river. So you catch very few of those, you know, the big donkey thread fin that you see down the port of Brisbane. You catch mm. very few of them way up the river. You know, I probably would have caught, you know, 20 or 500 that I've caught have been over a metre up there. They're mainly smaller fish. But again, I'd rather target off the surface a 70 centimetre fish than a metre 20 fish in 50 foot of water. Yeah, that's that's just how I'm wired to do it. Yeah. So if you're keen on doing it now, anyone listening to the show that wants to do it, like yeah, I did, my, I did my time by <laughs> finding the finding the light pools, finding the brightest light on the water you can, and it's not light around the water; it's light shining into the water. Sometimes that's at ferry docks. Sometimes it's um it's just random lights on the water. Sometimes it's bridges. 
Um, it's anywhere you can find some, and and they hold on lights as small as like a fifty cent piece. There's some there's some little lights that'll that don't often hold fish, but you know it might hold an eighty centimetre thready in what looks like just a torch going in the water. They wow. just use that light to to feeding it. So my when I had no car, my night was three piece fly rod, pull it into three pieces, throw it in the backpack, take a fifteen minute ride into town. And of course the riverside, there's all bikeways and it's very accessible in Brisbane the River. So I'd have a run that all went all the way up from St. Lucia up the top. It'd probably end down at Hamilton and mm-hmm. I could fish twenty spots in between and I'd probably have two casts in each spot. Because if I throw in one spot once, twice and there's nothing there, there's nothing there. So, you know, you might fish five spots, nothing, 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 and then bang, 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 get three in one spot. Or you might go along the river and it's one in that spot, one in that spot, one in that spot. Or you might go two weeks and not get a bite. It was one of those things where I – it was a time of my life where I go, reality television sucks. I yeah. can get it. My family goes to bed at eight at night. Between eight at night and midnight, I'm going. And I'm just going to ride that thing and, and learn those fish. And I reckon I got to learn them pretty well. And uh, it's unfortunate now that most of those little fish have moved out of the river again. Yep. Nearly 100 tonne of them have been netted by commercial guys at the mouth of the river, but that's a different story. So there's a combination of factors why it isn't as good as it used to be up in the Brizzy River. But it'll come back. We'll get another couple of good recruitment events and it'll sometime in the next decade, it'll get shit hot again. That is staggering, 100 tonne. It was over about five years. If you look at the uh, commercial catch of threadies, it was nothing, 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 nothing. And then yeah. after those 2013 floods, it ramped up. I think in the best years they got, you know, best for commercial, worst for us. They they caught about 30 tonne a year out of that that grid, that commercial grid. They're not allowed to net in the river, but they can net the flats just outside the mouth of the river, and that's where they pick up those spawning fish as they venture out of the no netting area. So, yeah, it's sort of... It's a shame, and you know, I've, I've met some of the guys, the commercial guys that did it. They said, "Oh yeah, while it was on, it was good money. You know, they just go and net them all up and take them to the markets." But from mm. a recreational point of view, what a what a waste of a great resource. You know, it reminded me of the Harvey Bay Golden Trevally going the wrong way. Yeah, yeah, that's um, it's a very sad sad tale that one too. And you know, it's very close to the heart of Chris and I, and no, no doubt a lot of other fly fishermen we know. You know, obviously Paul Dolan was very passionate about it too. And, Yep. Um, you know, a lot of, a lot of guys were. It's, it's pretty sad. Now, Steve, you're involved in a lot of the tagging too, uh, you know, tagging results that were, were found, uh, you know, certain patterns on the um, the Brisbane River threadies and dewies, right? Yeah, so I, I got, sort of got into it. As the fishing was tapering off, I got into it, and that's when I met um, the Sornock, Stefan Sornock and Bill Sornock, yep. who run the tagging program, and he was like, oh, can you tag threadies? It's like, yeah, give me some tags now. I'll tag some for you tonight. It's like, yeah, yeah, have some. I did, remember the first night I took it out, I, I tagged some threadies and dewies, and and um, I think I, I tagged about uh, maybe 150, 160 in my first year. But unfortunately, yep. it was when the river was in decline, so it might have been 160 one year and 100 the next year, and it was – I actually found it, you know, even though I sort of knew where the fish were, they got just harder and harder to catch. You know, I remember in the, in the first year I started tagging, I would average between three and four tags a night, and I would only fish for about two hours. So yeah. that's world-class fishing in anyone's book, but it's just, you know, last year I didn't, I did, I probably didn't fly fish at all for them. I only just cherry-picked yeah. a few good times and spots. I probably caught three Mulloway and no threadies last year. Like it was just, it's just a bit dry at the moment. Some of the young boys that last put the real hours in still get them, but I like to get them easy. So <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's where we're at at the moment with, with the tagging. But, but there was some, there was some cool stories with the tagging. There was a, um, there was one threadie that I caught. I caught him three times 
and it was on fly. Every time I caught this one thready, it was on fly. It was a spot I fished with lures and fly, but it, at the end of summer, beginning of autumn, it was a time where they really liked eating fly. So I nearly caught him basically once a year for three years, and I caught him first when he was like, you know, 65 centimetres, and I caught him he was 80 centimetres. Then I caught him he was 90 centimetres, and then eventually he grew up and went to the port, and I got the death certificate back, and he was, you know, someone had caught him at a metre something, and he was dead. But yeah. that's ready. I, I, I caught him three times and tagged him, but I actually lost him once as well. I'd, I'd use a, um, a, a 4.0 hook pink thing in the river. Was Again, it's it's not the best colour because I use pink things and black and bards and they both catch the same amount. But on a pink thing, I can see the fly and I can see the fish eat it, so which is why I like using the white yeah. fly. I hooked this fish one night and he and he actually went under this dock and he it was one of the few fish that actually you know broke me off and broke, broke the tip of the fly line off when I lent on him too hard. The next time I caught him, like a week later, he still had the fly, but it was hanging out of his butthole. So what? I jagged it. I, I didn't hook him in the mouth, but he must have rolled on it, and the fly went along his body and hooked him in the anus. So wow. when I caught him another week later, I caught him and I took the fly out. I go, oh, there's some line coming out your ass. It's like, oh, no, it's not coming out his ass. It's coming out of my fly, which hooked him in the ass, and that's why I couldn't land him. One thing you learn when you're catching these fish under the lights is if you hook them in the mouth, um, they will swim into the current and upstream. So if you're fishing the upstream side of structure and you let them eat and hook them in the mouth, they will virtually always run into the current. But if you foul hook them on the outside, they will always run down current, and that's usually into the structure which is holding the light on it. So this one, I'd hooked him in the arse, he'd run the wrong way, lost him, but then I got him I got him back and I still have that fly hanging up in my garage. And it was a it was a bit of a um I can't remember the guy's name that ties them for me. It was a guy that used to be on the Gold Coast. I think he went to Germany John Makem. John, John O. Makem, he ties them. And yeah. that was a testament to how good he tied them because it was hanging out of Threddy's ass for X number of nights in the river and it came back and I could probably still fish it. <laughs> so yeah, John O. Makem, I'd buy a I'd buy a ten at a time of the Four eight pink things. That was me, me gun one. Without weed guards, you don't need weed guards in the Brizzy River. Well, I don't yeah. think he's going anymore anyway. But mm. um, yeah, good testament for it. But, mm. uh, yeah, I've I've caught tag threadies out of the river on fly as well. But, uh, and haven't moved far from the data and not only grown like a hundred million a year or something like oh, that. Oh, really? Yeah, that's that's at the lower end of their growth. I've had some that have grown nearly twenty centimeters in a year. You haven't caught any of mine, have you? No, no, I haven't. No, I've only caught one tag thready, and it was during okay. the day in a, in a couple of feet of water. It's um. At uh, yeah, uh, I was picking them off in drains essentially. Um, no, so you're you're sort of daytime fishing for them, whereas I'm nighttime fishing. I caught I've probably done, I've done, thirty done both. of mine, I reckon thirty I've, of mine during that period. Yeah, I've done both. Plenty of jewfish as well on fly. Plenty of threadies, but um, but yeah, the daytime ones have been uh t taking my focus of attention recently. That's for sure. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, it's how, and I've heard how the guys do that on lures and fly. It's it sounds like a fool fishery. Yeah, 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 yeah. I don't really want to expand on it much because it's no, a city, cool. city of two million people. But, uh, <laughs> but um, yeah, it's pretty cool. It's a great fishery for uh, for for the population where it is in a, in a major city, and what a great species to be there. I think Volti was like alluding to you know like your your earliest experience with them, uh, you know, like and you're sort of talking sort of mid mid late two thousands or something like that. Well, what's the deal with no one really hearing much about them before that? You reckon? Oh no, so boy. My first, it was in the 2012, 2013. It was sort of around that time I started catching them. But my, my job when I was at uni was I used to work at Mossop's Tackle when it was in Cornwall Street at Annerley back in the mm -hmm. day. It wasn't when Lenny Mossop owned it. was after that. It was Simona's after that. But but back in those days then, we I remember we would sell 
lures to guys who would go underneath the Captain Cook Bridge and catch dewies. And that's still one of the, you know, one of the favourite spots is a big light line across the bridge. And when the Mulloway run, and it's not real good at the moment, but the, when there's good populations of Mulloway, even back then, which was in the, in the late 80s, guys were doing it. And there was an old guy that came into the shop and he'd always... He, he was a big live baiter for Mulloway and he'd always rig up, and he was telling me he'd rig up his rods with a, he'd have a live mullet and a live prawn. And he goes, I'll always catch the dewy or be on the live mullet. And if I catch a thread fin salmon, it'll be on the, on the prawn there. So that was back in the eighties, the guys were catching them there. And oh, I just threes, reckon that, yeah. Yep. yeah, I just reckon they've sort of, they probably haven't been in the numbers that they've been in now. I reckon it ebbs and flows. I reckon Maybe the last time there were shitloads of them, no one was really fishing the river. It was just a dirty old gravel dredge, you know. That's yeah. that's all it was. And the last yeah. time we had the pulse, hey, it was after we've had good recruitment. And you bet next time we get some real good floods, uh, a couple of years after that, I'll be getting right back into it again. Yeah, you're probably right there. I can remember seeing uh, people rave about, like in the, in the 80s as well, in magazines. And Grand Sky for Fishers talks about threadies in the Noosa River quite a bit, you know. Yep. It's, um, yep. Just don't. I mean, they're probably still there. We just don't see them get caught recreationally. I mean, it's not like we're not going to hear about it with uh, social media these days. That's, that's right. Sure. There's no social media in the 80s, mate. All it was was the, the magazines, and you'd have to have someone who was brave enough to write one. I, I remember there you go. a bit yeah. of black from the, the Brizzy River Mafia about you can't you can't tell anyone about it. It's like, well, no one gave – like one guy, who a young fella who fished ABTs, showed me how to catch the first one. I was brim fishing in the river, and he said, I'm going to show you something cool, and he caught one on a jerkbait. And I, he didn't give me any spots or anything, but I said, okay, I know how that works now. And I, he lit the fire under me because caught the shit out of him after that. So, <laughs> but, but the, you know, there's always a bit of a, you know, everyone thinks it's a massive secret. I think what the problem with the threadies in the Brizzy River was, it was a massive secret. So when the commercials are pulling out a hundred ton of threadies, there's not too many people whinging about it. My theory is more people do it, more people like it. Most people that are going to do it at night on lures are going to let them go anyway. Very few guys keep them. I wouldn't want to eat them out of the Brizzy River anyway. Um, but if there was there was 500 anglers who'd had a positive experience catching a Brizzy River threaty, maybe there's 500 more people that are going to start barking when when they're pulling the quantities they were pulling out of the river. Mm, Interestingly, that's, that's only in the point. last few years, I've I've been involved in the the management groups that yep. that reassess, you know, the making zones for the netting and my pub test for have we succeeded in this this challenge of rezoning is would it have saved the Brizzy threadies, you know? And if the answer is no, then I haven't done my job properly. We've got to, we've got to get it so that the management um, treats the Brisbane river threadies as different to Cape York threadies. The problem was they were managed as a statewide species yep. and no matter, even if they took every threadie out of the Brisbane river, they weren't going to, they weren't going to go extinct. So management yep. said, Oh, it's not really a problem. That localized depletion was a real problem for all the, the tackle shops in Brisbane that would sell stuff to guys that were catching them. It's, you know, you remove the resource that hurts their business. Mm. Hey, hey, Steve, I hadn't really planned to talk about this and you can tell me to get stuffed if you want. Can I draw you into a comment? Um, recreational fishing license, would that be something you'd be in favour of or not? Um, yeah, personally, yes. I, I fish all over Australia every year with the ABT and yeah. I've, Queensland is basically the only place I don't have to buy a licence. And I do have to buy a licence in ABT if I fish for Barra, if I'm going to fish Faust and Timber and places like that. So yes. I just see that there's a lot of arguments for not doing it and doing it. But I just reckon if if you've got skin in the game as a recreational angler and collectively we could pr we'd probably spend, you know, $10 million a year or $20 million a year on licences, all of a sudden when I'm sitting in a meeting with government – saying what I reckon they should do. They've got to listen a bit harder when, when we're contributing. So at the moment, it's all coming out of 
con- consolidated revenue. So I'm I'm fighting everyone else in these dog for the money, and and so are the guys in fisheries. Yep. If we're contributing and we're helping them allocate where it gets spent, I just reckon we've got a stronger a stronger voice. So I, I'm all for it. Yeah, same here. I, I am too, and I, I'm, I'm I like communicating with with industry professionals about their their thoughts on it, and they're all very similar. In you know, they're very quick to point out, particularly you know na- national you know identities. They go, yeah, Queensland's the only one that doesn't have it. You know, and at the very least, it 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 gives us it quantifies us as a, as a group. You know, um, at yep. the moment, you know, the Queensland government is just having educated guess about you know whether I actually fish or not. Um, they they might go, oh look, Jeff owns a boat. Um, he, you know, he might fish, he may not, but they don't know yep. that. You know, I like to go to Harvey Bay and chase gold, and so they don't yep. know like like driving up north, or they don't like I, I might want to drive down a jumping pin and catch flathead or, or you know dewies or you know that sort of thing. You know, and it's it's one of those things that. Um, yeah, I, I just it to me beggars beggars belief. They just they're they're making their management decisions, you know, off educated guesses, and, and yeah. that might be to them. But that's and look, I'll yeah. I'll tell you the reason why we haven't got a license in Queensland is because both political parties have a policy where there's going to be no new fees. Mm. Yeah. So, and I, I've gone to government. I said, don't have to have a new fee. Just get your stocked impoundment permit and make it in the saltwater as well. There you go. There's your license. Not a new fee. It's just an expanded fee. Yeah, no, no, don't listen to Morgo, do they? No, <laughs> go away. Morgo. You, you can't go in making sense, mate. You know that, right? <laughs> oh, I don't know. The fisheries minister I suggested that to only a few weeks later got stood down because she she was that fisheries minister from Bundaberg that I assumed had some sort of gambling problem and couldn't pay a bill. So anyway, they 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 got rid of her pretty quick. <laughs> That's it. That's, that's, that sounds like an unusual, a sketchy politician, you say. Tell us yeah, more. Yeah, well, you know, yeah. One, one that got caught. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Hey, Steve, it's probably a good time to get started on um, on competition fishing. Um, uh, you know, we touched on it briefly with the long, long tails, but, um, you know, the ABT um, in Australia is, is, you know, definitely been at the forefront of, of competitions and, you know, I'd, I'd wager that most of the other sort of like satellite or peripheral sort of, uh, you know, mainly came out in competition to it. Um, but, you know, it has played such an important role in in um, in speeding up the development of uh, tackle and techniques and, you know, boating trends and, you know, things like that. Um, have you – did when you first started the ABT, was – were you thinking that big? Like, did you think it'd have that big a ripple effect on the uh, local? Um, we'd hope so. As I, yeah. I spent the years before I started ABT, I did a fair bit of travelling. I went and did tournaments in South Africa. Um, yep. Made of mine, Mike Connolly's brother lived in South Africa. Went over there for about a month, fishing a few tournaments and and seeing how it worked. I went over to an FLW bass tournament in Connecticut in USA to check that out, how it was. Yeah. And. I went to Japan as well. I went to a few different places. I went to one of the tackle shows in Japan as a guest of Quintrex and met the tournament guys over there. So when it came to starting ABT over here, there was, I had a bit of a head start because I'd, I'd been, you know, you couldn't just Google them on the internet back then. You had to you had to sort of go and look to, to steal their ideas properly. So our tournaments yeah. <laughs> here were a mix of all the best ideas from South Africa and Japan and the USA. And we didn't mimic any of them, but we just stole, you know, the tag boards we have, I stole them off South Africa. And then yep. some of the other things came out of the Japan ones. And then the boat and non boat pairing thing came from the professional tournaments in the USA as a way to avoid cheating. So and, we yeah. always thought that it would help to develop the industry. And to this day, it's over 20 years old now, 
if you ask me why does ABT exist, it exists as a tool to develop the industry. Because back then, um, you know, there were tournaments around. They were usually fundraisers from fish stocking groups because they didn't have the stocked impoundment permit back then. You had to earn your money to put the fish in. That was Mm. when it was hard work being in a stocking group, either doing chook raffles or running tournaments or doing whatever. And the other other part of the ABT equation was back in – Back when I won that fly fishing tournament on the Sunshine Coast, it was a sailfish tournament, a one with long tails, queen fish, trevally, you know, anything that was on the IGFA list. I went and caught five of them and five of them and five of them and finished off with a few good long tails. Yeah. It was actually a bit of a negative experience for me because this whole tournament was designed to showcase how good the sailfishing was off Malula Bar, which is another fishery which doesn't really much exist anymore. Yeah. But you know, I always thought if you win a tournament, it should be the best experience of your life. And everyone was quite negative about it. And they go, oh, you cheated. You couldn't have caught three long tails in a day. Because back then, three long tails in a day was probably heaps. But I had photos of them all. And I was I was quite happy we'd done all the right thing. And I tagged them all. And and it was just, it was sort of a kick in the guts for doing well. And I yeah. thought, you know what, when we, do, when we do tournaments, you know, all thinking about it, when we do tournaments, we're going to design it so the guy that wins, it's going to be awesome. No one can accuse him of cheating. Every, we're going to celebrate his victory and we're going to give him the rewards he deserves. And at the same time, I've, I was working for Fishing Monthly Magazine, still own Fishing Monthly Magazines. Right. Sponsorship in those days was all directed at journalists. So I had a cohort of journalists writing for me that yep. were on the take from all the companies that didn't want to buy the money with ads. I go, well, this has got to stop. I want, I want the good fishermen to get the sponsorship. I don't want the journalists to get the sponsorship. So we really did pull it away from a lot of the journalists and a lot of the good anglers who get the sponsorship then. The big irony now is now when the social media is invented again, the sponsorship yeah. sort of gone away from the good anglers and it's gone back to the good self-promoters again. So it's like, well, we, we tried pretty hard. We did all right for yeah. a decade and a half. It's just now if you've got the loudest voice, you're sort of you're getting the love again. You know, oh, I suppose it's not 100% that way. It's probably you know half the sponsorship might go to good fishermen and half might go to the good self-promoters. Seems so, fair. Yeah. So that, and that's, that's the two parts of genesis of, of ABT. Um, we tried to start it at the Morton Bay Game Fishing Club, actually, and we did a few trial events there, but the committee of the club were like, nah, we're not we're, – Australian bass, they're not a – that we're not a bass fishing club so they said go and take it elsewhere and and as i said my boss back then said start it up and give it a crack and and we're still going today we started with bass in 1999 we added bream in 2000 or 2001 i think it was and then we Mm. added barra in 2005 and that's still the the fundamentals of our tournaments are nationwide brim tournaments lure and fly cast retrieve East Coast Bass Tournaments, because that's geographically where they are, and then mm-hmm. Impoundment Barra Tournaments have got, come pretty big recently. And, uh, you know, there's there's a great season in for us. As, as a staff of ABT, we love going on the Barra Tour at the end of the year and catching plenty yeah. of Barra. And it's, it's the only teams event that we really run where you can pick who you fish with. Everything else is all about, you know, the who shares wins philosophy, teaching people how to fish, fishing with different people. But the Barra is just... Let's just go catch a shitload of fish and have a few beers and have a good time. So it's um that's that's what ABT has developed to now. It's before social media, ABT was quite big. It had three and a half full-time staff it got up to, running yeah. nearly 50 tournaments a year. Now it's got two half-time staff and me running it, and we're probably running about 20 tournaments a year. We've become a lot more efficient in our media coverage and doing what we do. And, and social media, although it's killed a lot of stuff that we do, it's also helped 
us become more efficient. So it's done the whole circle. Its motto is who shares wins. We're all about making you fish with people you wouldn't normally fish with. And yeah. that means there are no secrets. You know, there's no such thing in a brim and a bass tournament of you keeping a lure secret because that non-boater you're with today, tomorrow's with someone else, next tournament is with someone else. The technique goes from obscurity to very popular in a matter of weeks. Mm. Yeah. A lot of how, how, fly fishermen would be, you know, nodding their head in agreement now, thinking thinking of John Schofield's contribution to both tournament fishing and fly fishing for bass. Yes, and he was he was the gun back then. He was if if you're not familiar with the ABT bass history, he was one of the he wasn't he did he fish the first year? He fished in the first couple of years and was reasonably unsuccessful. And as soon as he got into his groove of I'm going to catch them on fly. I'm going to design a fly. I'm going to invest all of my time and efforts in in becoming good at this. Man, yeah. he was unstoppable with a fly rod, and it, and he would regularly, and I mean like every second tournament, beat all of the other fifty boats in the field with a fly rod, a sinking line, and his famous bass vampire fly or a variation of it. Wow, you know he would the cadence of the strip, the sinking of it, how the line would sit in the water, the whether the eyes were glow in the dark or just fluorescent or dark, how many bits of of the fibres were in the tail. It was an art form for him and no one could deny that he could mop the floor with anyone. So after about five years of ABT bass tournaments, John Schofield was the highest ever money winner. The person that knocked him off was Carl Jockinson. And Carl was, wow. yeah, of course, we all know Carl now. He's a Bassmaster Elite Pro. He, John really took... Um, Carl under his wing when he won his first Bass Elite event. I sent some footage over to the US of Carl winning his first ever Bass Electric tournament. Yeah, um, actually, no, he didn't win. He he got big bass and he caught it on a fly that John gave him, and he was wow. like sixteen years old. And he's and it's Carl in this video, and I'd like to thank John for giving me the fly. <laughs> and he had a five hundred dollar check in his hand, which was like at that time probably akin to a hundred thousand dollars in his Elite win. Yeah. And and it was it was such a good friendship that those guys had. Like John essentially coached and gave all of his knowledge to the guy who would ultimately top him in the money winnings and beat him in half the tournaments that he fished. And there's no greater gift than that gift of knowledge and and yeah. respect. And and that's why John Schofield has got such good respect in the industry. He's, he's very happy to give his information out. And if you've yep. got to spare three hours, he'll tell you all about it. <laughs> he's, guess, he is. He he does. He leaves no stone unturned, and he is a great man for doing it. I I really I, I really appreciate it. I guess that's the embodiment of you know your philosophy of who shares wins, you know. And um, you know, Chris and I started this uh, this podcast under a similar guise. We use the the term. We just want to get people connected. You know, we want to yep. get people connected to species, techniques. You know, gun anglers. Um, you know the history of things, why things happen, you know, that sort of thing. We just want to, you know, clarify things and give a, you know, our, our version or, or for largely part an unbalanced, uh, sorry, a balanced view of, of what's going on around the place. But, um, yeah, it, you're allowed to be self-indulgent for a sec here, mate. Uh, and, you know, how did you feel when um, when Carl Jockinson won his first Bass Elite? Oh, I was crying. I was like yeah. everyone else. In I rang John and said, were you crying? I go, yep. And I was actually, I woke up, we knew he was doing well in that event. And I often follow Carl. And with the time difference, it, the interesting shit happens at like two and three in the morning. So yeah. I'd watched it until about midnight on their live coverage. I'd fallen asleep, but something made me wake up. And when I woke up, he had four fish in the well and 
he had four great ones and it was like, how good's that? And then he was trying to catch his fifth fish. And I've fished enough with Carl over the years and my brother fished teams tournament with him for years. We know Carl really, really well. We spent a lot of time with him. He was host yeah. of AFC TV show for a few years after he got kicked out. He was the only bass angler to ever win four AFCs in a row, like four events in a row. And you could just see that the pressure was building and building and building. And when he, when he caught his fifth fish, I'm sure you've seen the sequence on YouTube when he caught his fifth fish and he broke down into tears. And he's like, yeah. you know, I've spent my whole life. The quote was, I spent my whole life trying to catch that fish. And he literally has. Like that was, and to watch it all happen live was awesome. And yeah. I rang up John. We talked about it, you know, a couple of weeks later. And I go, Are you cried? I go, ah, all of my eyes out. He said it was, it was amazing. And, and it was. And I reckon, I reckon if you talk to the people that watch that, the tournament fish, half of them would have that same emotional response as well. We, we can't all go to America and try to be a Bassmaster Pro, but how cool is it when the best and the most likable guy in Australia goes and does it? Because yeah. there's no – he used to win tournaments on his own bat. He would never walk on anyone else's water. He'd always do the right thing. He was a gentleman yeah. about it. To see a nice guy like that go and do it, you just – you can't help but like him. That's why he's got so many fans globally. He's just – He's just bloody likable, and yeah, he's I think, super charismatic. Eh? That's I, I, for sure. I don't know if you remember that, but before he went to America, the Aussie Bassby shows ran a fundraiser to help him send him over there. And you know, guys like Casey Stoner, one of his mate, you know, the motorcycle GP champion, he mm, was yeah. there, and they raised over twenty thousand bucks for him. And they're like, "Carl, good to see you go, mate, but this is just to make sure that you don't come back and beat us." You know, <laughs> <laughs> go and meet those Americans now. So, so you know, who who else would be able to organise a fundraiser? This is 10 years ago where over $20,000 yeah. was raised to, to help Carl on his journey. Like we all love living vicariously through him. And, uh, and to be honest, Carl was pretty mean on a flyer back in the day too. Johnny taught him the dark art of catching bass on bass vampires. And he yeah. was quite good at it. Yeah. I've seen his name on a couple of, uh, for, uh, at least I know he's on the Saratoga uh, yeah. tournament trophy as well. Yep. Um, he cleaned that up first go, didn't he? I, think I remember he, the first he also one, won yeah. the um he would have won the Hins Dam one. There was one that only went for a couple of years back in the day, and I think you know Carl and John fished together one year, and they would have cleaned that up. So, you know, he's just he's just a fishy guy. Like I know that you look in the elites and they go, oh, you know, Carl's come 80th in that event. It's like I unless you've been there and seen the scale of it, it's it's like it's preposterous what he's done. It's it's like someone coming to Australia and going up to Faust and say, yeah, just give me a week's practice on Faust and I'm going to go and beat Griffo and Karim DeRitter on, on the Barras. Yeah. And then being able to do it. It's like these fishing against guys that have spent their whole life catching these fish. He never caught his first one till he was like 28 or 26 or something like that. So Crazy. those yeah. formative years that we've all spent learning the local fish and the tides and the weather and the bait fish and what happens when it floods and he had to learn all that on the road. And not only did he have to learn it on the run, he was paying big money to do it, you know, getting taught lessons by these American bass pros. So when he when he qualified for the elites finally, which is something that thousands of people want to do in the US, that was preposterous. Then in his second ever event, he was in the top 10 after a couple of days. That, that was preposterous. And then later that year, he was leading an event for one day. That was insane. Then a, a year late, a year or two later, he led an event after day one of an event, and that was the the infamous uh, event where Boyd Duckett came and poached his fish on the second day, and he just alienated a whole country. There's a whole country yeah. that just would not buy any Boyd Duckett tackle ever again. Nah. Um, <laughs> and then he's had his lows. He's been kicked out of the elites. He's made his way back into the elites. 
for him to win that first fish, it was like, oh, thank God you've done that, mate. I, um, that is so much pressure off you now, financially, yeah. career-wise. Like, you never have to think about packing up and coming home now. You can, you've can you made a name for yourself and you've done it in the most classy manner possible. You've gone and found your own fish. You've never busted in on anyone else. You've taken the hard road whenever possible. You've tried to learn it yourself. You haven't tried to sponge everyone else's information. Like, it's just doing it the right way, which is why I think he's got so many fans. How old is Carl now? Uh, well, he was about 26. Well, he'd be probably late 30s now, mid yeah, to right. late 30s. Still got yonks to go. So many more uh, years ahead of him, though. Yeah. There, there's American pro, like, well into their 60s you can fish. So, you yeah. know, we're, we're looking forward to the second win now. And, he, it, again, it's it's not easy to win against these guys. There's 100 Carl Jockamsons fishing that tournament. Like, yeah. You don't just get there because you were born in America and you like fishing. Like these guys have gone through the process to learn their craft and do it. And 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 you know, again, looking at the scoreboard, we can look at it and go, "Oh, he's come 80th in that tournament. He hasn't done any good." Carl described it once as he goes, "To win an elite event, you've got to have the best day of your life four days in a row." Well, you know? and how many is uh, have that? You know, in a competition format, so. That's why competition guys like him. That's why we're proud he's come out of ABT and uh, the huge shares wins is yeah is gone global. Yeah. So what a, pe- a lot of people don't probably either didn't know or didn't remember was Carl was living. He was camping at a lot of these places, right? He, he was living out of a caravan or you know a camper van, and he was. Um, he was um yeah he you know the first very first guy that picked him up in America was a guy called Gary Boyd who was the guy that ABT would send our grand final winners over to. So if you yeah. won the ABT Bass Grand Final, we'd send you to America. Gary was a guy I met over there real early on, and he yeah. lived in LA. He'd pick you up from the airport, take you out, teach you to bass fish for a week, throw you into a tournament, you know, look after all the stuff for it. We'd give him all the money to pay all the bills, and he'd send it back. And they, the Aussies would get that tournament experience. We'd yeah. normally get flogged because, you know, you've only fished for the fish for three or four days before you've done it. But... But Carl got his break in America by winning the grand final. He went out to an event called the US Open. Yep. Um, he came second in that, and he fished with an elite series pro on the last day of the competition called Fred Rambanis. Well, when he moved to America, he went to he went to Gary's place for a while, but then he ended up moving in with Fred and living in Fred's garage for a few years. Wow. Um, from there, he went to Gene Iceman, who was the guy, actually, that used to own Hydrowave, the Hydrowave fish attracting mm. the noise things. He lived in Gene's garage for a while, and then finally, after he's um, after he won his event, he's finally bought his you know shed on the lake now in Tennessee, and it's it's been really cool. All of these guys that have supported him, just they were all in tears too when he won because they know how hard it was for him, you know, doing it out of someone's garage. Like you haven't even got a home to live in; you've just got your tackle in someone's garage and a a fold out bed. And when you go into the events, you sort of you know in cheap hotels and. Yeah, it's just it's it's a struggle to do it. America's a scary ass place when you're by yourself trying to compete at the top level of the sport for a fish you never caught until you were twenty six years old, I'm telling you. Mm. And and there's kids who are coming through the university programs. Like they've got you know, the universities have got programs for, you know, NBA and you know, NFL yep. and everything, tennis, hockey, fishing. whatever. And now, they got yeah, fishing it's now fishing. Too. yeah, it's crazy. Like that level of pedigree to, to to actually compete with those people and then to actually win. Just yep. incredible, yep. amazing feat. You know? So there you go. ABT did something good. We helped the industry over here, and we've uh, we've managed to export the guy that used to beat us all the time. So that's pretty grouse as well. <laughs> well, <laughs> speaking of, I mean, doing something good. I mean, there's a lot more than it's dumping that. But I mean, you could say with with Carl that 
you know, the, the ABT tournaments, if it didn't exist, you know, may, may not have uh, perpetuated his, his skills. I mean, he's obviously a natural anyway. But, I mean, the you know, you could say... would be not there. I yeah, yeah, no of course. Yeah. But, but in addition to that, like, it's uh, the, the tournament scene, the, the competitive nature of, of that, although it's, uh, you know, who shares wins to a degree, but it's still competitive without that environment. You know, skills skills uh, probably take a a less of a incline in um it, to to reach to where they where they are. What oh, my yeah. point my point I'm sort of getting at is, I mean, like you you you're talking about working you know in the tackle industry before ABT, uh, and now the, to the position you you are, I'm still you're, I'm sure you're still aware of the tackle industry and 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 developments that are going in it. Do you think the ABT has had a pretty big role in um in in shaping the tackle industry in Australia as well? Um, I- Definitely. It's, you know, and, and don't worry, I remind sponsors of this all the time when I'm trying to sell them sponsorship each year. So, <laughs> so I, I'm not shy of reminding them, but, but look, it's, you, you can't, you can't claim all the credit. All you can do is light the few, like we did ABT and that might've been the catalyst that helped get, and I don't call them competition tournaments. I just call them other tournaments. I, I was, I was wildly aware that I couldn't run every tournament all over Australia, but what we could do is set an example so that when people do run tournaments, they're catch and release. They look after the fish. They're only mm-hmm. catching five fish instead of 50 fish. Um, it's all about, you know, it, it was a cool thing to to share your product and be open about what you're doing. If there wasn't the who shares wins, it would be much harder for the social media, um, the guys to justify sponsoring social media anglers. You know, mm. if you're not showing what you're using, you can't, yes. you're not selling lures. Yeah. yeah no, I love that. I love that. You know, in, in competition, there's no hiding. You know, you've got to get it done there on the day. Yeah. You know, the accountability is there. It's, it's not. It's not. You know, good enough for someone to go. Yeah, I can catch. You know, I have no trouble catching. You know, a thousand one kilo bass. You know, whatever. You know, but you, you can. You actually have to walk the walk if you're going to yep. talk the talk. You know, yeah, and, and that's and that's why. Look, in the early days, don't worry. I I invited all of the high profile journalists to ABT events, yep. and. To their credit, the guy, the journalists that jumped on board and tested themselves and proved themselves to be just as good as they said they were, were guys like Bushy, Steve Starling, Ian Miller. Um, there was other famous journalists that were apparently the best thing since sliced bread. I could not get them to a tournament kicking and screaming, getting dragged behind a horse. Like they would, they they didn't want to get out of their comfort zone and do it. You know. Like even Harrow came and fished a Barra tournament or two back in the day. He did good. He, he won money in Barra tournaments. So, you know, we all know Harrow can catch him, but Harrow could also catch him in a tournament environment. And I have the utmost yeah. respect for the guys that, that could talk the talk and then later on could walk the walk. You know, everyone was always critical of Starlo in Rex Hunt show. Oh, he always just gets shown where the fish are. You know, you hear all the stories about, you know, back in the day it was on the discussion groups. Now it's on social media. No, those guys can catch him. He's really good at catching fish, just like, you know, anyone else who's really passionate and doing it is. So so good on him for, for jumping in and testing themselves. And, and I don't expect him to for, to be a lifelong tournament angler. Guys come and go from tournaments. So while you yeah. have the competitive drive, you do it. When you don't have the competitive drive and you want to you want the tranquility of fishing and the, the relaxation of it, don't fish a tournament. If you want to relax, go and do your thing then. But we've seen, you know, if I look at, guys that have fished tournaments in the past and are now taken different pathways there's you know we've got carl in america we i, I remember when chris cleaver fished his first event as a as a non-boater and i don't know if you know chris he's yeah. a sydney-based angler that catches literally everything giant with fins and he's a gun angler 
Mm. He he came through ABT as a non-boater and he did his time. He won two boats off ABT actually on his way through, and yeah. um and then now now he likes catching marlin and jewies and and all sorts of other things. So I, I've always been a big advocate of the fact that, especially with brim, if you're a good brim fisherman, your skills are very easily upscaled. So yeah. if you if you can catch big fish on light line. You can get go from brim to bass pretty easily. You can go brim to barra pretty easily. I, I've always challenged some of the barra guys. So you guys are great catching barra on 50-pound braid and leaders. I want to see you in an oyster rack with two-pound line pulling a brim out to mm. see. You. It's not about strength then. It's about skill. And I've always thought that uh, it's easier to upscale than to downscale when it comes to fishing skills. That's a good point. You, you, you're dead right. That's it right there, eh? For sure. So, yeah, I, I don't know if someone who's good at catching long tails on fly would necessarily be the – best presenter of a dry fly you know whereas vice versa I, I think it's the same in fly fishing it's it's easier to to go from from dry fly to salt water than the reverse because i tell you what i was a, i lived in tassie for seven months i was the worst trout fly fisherman in history <laughs> i caught i lived there for seven months i caught two oh, in wow. seven yeah. months I'm, I'm getting out of this shit place it's full of this i can't catch yeah <laughs> I can attest to that. I've come off pelagics to fishing for brim for the first time uh, in, a, in a while the other day. I snapped, snapped three off right in front of me. It just fucking pissed me off. <laughs> That's right. Uh, yeah, I, I had to remind myself to not not strip strike because it's such a light tippet, you know. It That's was, right. Um, pop it. Which, yeah, it just popped them right in front of my face, you know. It was yep. so fucking frustrating. They're, they take a lot of skill, those that those fish. We, uh, it. Yeah, it's, uh, we, we have a bit of a philosophy on the show, though, but uh, about trout fishermen and brim fishermen is that they're very easy to catch uh on this show you know take it <laughs> rightfully so how passionate you can take because you lose your fucking mind with uh, with brim and trout you know that's for sure they're just easy to sledge on but mate, a lot of, a lot of skill and i think it's right what you said there it's pretty interesting that point about you know going up rather it's easy to go up than it is to go down because it's uh it's very very easy to forget that finesse that's for sure that's right so yeah, yeah. Oh, look and and we're used to it though I've, I've tournament brim fish now for about i ran them for the first six years and once i got enough staff i started um fishing them um, and there was a bit of pushback to that at the start until I just until I revealed that every single cent I won in tournament earnings, and that's to this day, I put back into the company to to help develop tournament fishing. So I've put back in in cash, probably a hundred thousand bucks in tournament winnings has gone back into it to buy yeah. gear, buy vans, do the stuff. So still haven't taken a cent out of ABT in twenty years. No dividends. I've given back all my prize money. I said at the end of this thing, if the industry is still going good after forty years. The industry can buy me a beer or two, I reckon. Because mm. <laughs> I haven't, I definitely haven't been milking it. Like I, I happily run a magazine company that's been very good to me. I've had up to twenty-five staff in that company in the past, and and magazines aren't what they used to be, but it still, it still provides for me and my family, and you know, buys me a car and a boat, and it still engages with lots of people nationwide. Like my. With COVID, my, all my state-based magazines, I had such a precipitous drop in advertising, we've had to roll them all into one. So we have a one national fishing monthly magazine now. I have six staff now that work on that instead of we, the 25 we had back in the day. But it's, yeah. with, with business, it's all, with me, it's all about if the demand's there, do it. If the demand's not there, just scale it back until it, it fits. And, you know, I, I'm sure I'll still be publishing a magazine in another 10 years' time. It just It's how much resources can you spend to put out the one magazine. So if, if there's still 10,000 people wanting to buy Fishing Monthly magazine, we'll put it out there and, and people love it. There's a, there's a whole generation of people like me. I'm 48 now, between yep. my age and about 70, that just don't want to spend the whole day on screens. They want to... 
read some curated copy, what's happened in the area that someone else has put together for them and there's no bullshit. And that's that's who my customers are now and we've still we still got plenty of them in the magazines. So that's um that's an interesting point, Steve, about you know, identifying and engaging with your listenership. Um, how do you, how do you identify what your what your um you know your demograph is? Um, well, I'm I'm pretty aware of in fishing. The, you know, there's the old saying that the 10% of people catch 90% of the fish. Well, yeah, that's great because every magazine in the country is targeting that top 10%. I'm very happy to target the bottom 90%. So, I'm all about what's biting in your area, what's coming up. What, what what are they going to buy? I'm for the guy that might only go fishing once a month. They might be like you and me, go fishing once a week. They might go fishing once every month, once every three months. They want ideas about where to go and what to catch, and they want yeah. to know the basics of how to catch them. And they, you know, my, my read average reader is your is your average, you know, walk into a tackle shop, give me a. I don't want to spend more than a hundred bucks on the combo. Where am I going to go fishing yep. this weekend? I, I want the guy behind the counter to say, buy this fishing monthly. You know, everything you'll need to know will be in there. That'll let you know which, if you go north, south, east, west, there's some ideas for you in there. So remember that not everyone's as keen as us. There yeah. are often guys that are, if they go out and they catch one fish, they're pretty happy, you know, and that's that's a good day for them. So, um, and, and that pervades through, you know, I have to, tell my editors that i have to tell my writers that a lot of the time you have to say remember people's expectations are just to catch something you go to fisheries yeah. and you're in fisheries meeting remember people are happy if they just catch a fish this commercial guy he's not happy unless he's catch 10 ton of them this guy yeah. he's happy if he catches one of them or doesn't even have to catch it just has to hook it he's happy so yeah. so i just i dial my um like i have tournament reports and stuff in there but most of my bread and butter in the magazine is basic stuff for basic guys that don't go all the time. Right. And that, that seems to be an enduring recipe for success for you. Well, it's, I'm targeting the 90%. Not yeah. The 10%. There's still plenty of technical stuff in there, though. That's for sure. Well, I've, I've noticed. What I've learned from ABT is I've I've probably fished with, I don't know, 200, 300 non-boaters. Like, you draw, you draw a different person every day. Mm. And I guarantee I've learned something off every single one of those anglers that I've fished with doesn't matter if they're the best non-boater in Australia or if it's their first tournament or they don't fish much. They'll always catch a fish doing something a bit different from what I'm doing. And I'm always like, mm, how did you catch that? And we talk about it and I tell them how I'm catching mine. They say how they catch theirs. I guarantee I've learned something about fishing, about boating, about nature, about life from all of those guys. And yeah. to have that open mind is what is what it's all about. Like if, you know, I, I see on social media a lot guys that, you know, the cup's full. They're not going to get taught anything else. I am 100% of the opinion that if I go fishing with you guys, I'm going to learn heaps. If I go fishing with, if I go fishing with someone that's never been fishing before, the questions they ask me make me think about why and what I'm doing. So there is no one that I am not willing to learn from, and I'm by no means too good to not learn from anyone. Every day is a school day. That's it. Got to yep. treat it as a learning experience, and and I am one hundred percent. And being a tournament fisherman, I have been humbled in fishing countless times. I have gone out when I thought I am going to annihilate these fish today. I've I've got them locked in, and I get no bites all day. And I've I've got a fair bag of tricks to try and get them to bite. And you know, barra barra for me are the worst. Like <laughs> I I very rarely donut on brim nowadays, but but I very frequently donut on barra. And I've picked up a bit from the Barra guys. Barra isn't that boater, non-boater thing, so my learning curve's a lot slower. But 
it's getting there. I, I finally fished my first barra tool last year where I didn't donut any day. And that was my goal. I didn't. I don't think I'm good enough to win a tournament, but I'm sure I'm good enough to to just land one fish a day and do it. And that's that's my learning path. It's a long way down in the brim. It's a lot closer to the start in Barra, but every single person I fish with, I'm taking advantage of of what they can teach me. Mm. It's a good attitude to have, not only in tournaments, but in, in rec fishing, well, in life, really. But it's uh, in life, mate. It's yeah. yeah. It's, it's there's you know. I I always think I'm quite a patient person. Like I've you know, and, and having kids tests it to the limit, you know, but it's, but I'm always like, when I go fishing with my kids, I, 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 t- we often go down the Brizzy River throwing crankbaits for brim. And my, my oldest is very, very keen on learning how to fish. My youngest just wants to throw out and catch them all the time. But he's always asking me all the time, how come, how come you're catching five and I'm catching one? I'll go, well, you, you're winding too fast. You know, you got to wind slower. You got to be aware of, and, and when you're throwing into the tide, you've got to wind quicker than when you're throwing against the tide. And, and it was really cool to see over the last six months, he's actually finally thinking about all these things and it's clicked and he's, he learns it all. So, so it's not just fishing, it's with life. I, I see people that succeed and, and people that are more patient than me and pe- people that, even people that are, that have got a short fuse, like you learn from, you, you learn, you learn what triggers those people and you learn how to to interact with them and and have a happy outcome for both of them i remember mm. my mum said when we ran our first our first ever tournament at lake mugra we had all the boats lined up in those days it was a shotgun start so you'd you know shoot the gut you know blow the horn 20 boats and drive in every direction again world's worst occupational health and safety rules but mm. hey it was 20 years ago <laughs> this one skier decided he saw all the boats lined up and he decided to ski across the front of all of the boats and it's like and I just go, ah, fucking no, screw you. I'm going to let him go, you know. And so all, you know, he fell off and all the boats raced around him. And he came up and he and I go, oh, that's probably not the smartest thing I've ever done. But he came up and he had a go at me in the end. And it's like, I said, dude, yeah, I'm sorry. I'm a bit frustrated. And, and I, I see your point of view. And, I, you know, and we talked about it. And in the end, he was sort of, oh, okay, we're all cool. You know, maybe you won't do that again. Maybe I won't do that again. You could negotiate an outcome. And my mum was watching it all happen. And she goes, you're good at you're good at negotiating and and getting along with people and and seeing what pushes their buttons and doesn't push their buttons because you know I could push it and unpush it for that guy, and I think that's a skill that I've taken through life. You just need to be able to to know what motivates people, know what you know, know how to push the right buttons for their ego, know how to how to not make them do what you want to do. It's just it's know how to make them feel good about themselves. And people that feel good about themselves and feel good around you are always going to work well for you fish well, abide by the rules, be good humans. And that's that's what we all want to be at the end of the day. We want to have a we want to have a happy life, not an antagonistic life, I think. Everything you said everything you said just there, you could easily translate human out of that and put fish in that. I mean that's um that's a it's gotta be one of the benefits of the tournaments as such, you know, for an angler to develop fast. You know, with it with it as compared to not having the, the angler the tournaments there. I mean the uh um obviously the social interaction between people and learning the personality and stuff like that. But I mean, successful anglers can, can almost do that to, to, to fish, you know, like, uh, in, um, you know, being able to empathize with the species so- somewhat and, um, being able to like, you know, unload a bag of tricks as you put before. It's yep. the same way you put unload a bag of tricks to that skier. You know, like once you start to realize you can control the outcome, 
to what it is, you know, like it's a, it's a matter of conceding a certain degree to in that in that person's yep. eyes, as, as it would be also to to fish as well. Concede your stealth, or uh, or sorry, keep your stealth and and um, yeah, you know, it's just sort of where I'm getting at there. You know, like it's a it's a it's a hard thing to describe, but I mean, it's a, something that's almost a, an instinct that you, you know you would need to learn for a successful angler anyway. And I would imagine that the tournaments uh, it would it would have been interesting to see people's skill level increase. So so fast, and I know I sort of brought this up before, but that's that's seems to be one of the biggest uh, benefits to me staying on the outside looking in for for the ABT and the tournaments is just that you know you have you have one excess successful angler there that everyone wants to learn how how it's happening, and then then they then they might be looking for to do something different, which which makes them sort of branch out to something that's a bit left field, and then that might work or it might not work, and you can at least rule it out or or include it. And that progression would happen so much faster than than it would be if it was happening recreationally, you know. Yep. But yeah, and but it's because it makes you fish in times where you wouldn't normally fish. Like you and I yeah. have our favourite spots and our favourite tides. You'll have your spot for your drain that you want to fish. If all of a sudden you had to go and do that at an opposite tide, you would have to adapt to to work out where the fish are and how to trigger them. And that's you know that's what tournaments do. It just puts you outside your comfort zone and makes you learn it. Mm. Or if you don't want to learn it, you get get pretty used to getting some zeros you know <laughs> yeah well it might be the donuts that motivates people to get better or, or what you know but um yep. you know either way uh without tournaments you know like uh skills skills don't that rising rising tide doesn't lift all ships so to speak you know it's um mm. you know if everyone's motivated to um to not get on the bottom which is what a tournament is essentially That's everyone it. wants to win you know yeah yeah i don't have to win but i hate coming last <laughs> That's it. And yeah. as Ricky Bobby says, if you're not first, you're last. Like, <laughs> well, you know what? In tournaments, I've learned that if people catch a limited fish, like we have a five-fish limit in most of our tournaments, they yeah. can catch a five-fish limit and come last, and they're still happy. You know, yeah. I've, yeah. my goal is to catch the five. If everyone else got a better five than me, so be it. But you know, I've I've caught me five, and I've hit I've hit one of my own little targets, and and people like hitting their own targets, and that's that's why we don't make them too high. Like if if I if I had a brim tournament where it was your biggest 30 fish count, which is what the bag limit is. So very few people would get to it. And I would have a lot of people thinking they've failed. But if I have 50 boats and 45 of them catch their limit, they're 45 happy boats. So mm. a bit of psychology involved in it. Yeah. yeah. There is. There is. You're right. Well, there's mm. got to be. There's got to be in all sorts of tournaments, isn't it, really, I suppose, at the end of the day. Do you find that those people that are um, that, that type of personality that are happy with their five fish are, are the quickest learners? Yeah, definitely, because they're you know people that are motivated just by winning usually aren't patient enough to learn what it takes to win, and they they bounce out of the sport pretty quick. So you know I've probably seen I've seen thousands of anglers come and go from ABT. Mm, the one yeah. the ones that have the right mental attitude and you know uh, yeah and I and I notice it with a lot of lot, some of the social media guys and so you, you can't fill up the cup which is already full. You know if they if you think you know everything at the age of twenty five. You, you, you know you don't I'm, I'm 48 and i i'm i'm very aware of how little i know about everything so, <laughs> i'm the same uh, age dude i could say the same view. thing and you know what the guy that did that i used to work in uh i used to work in mossops as i said back, back at uni and i remember going somewhere and catching some fish and i go oh, i bet you no one's done that before and trevor saunders pulled me up and goes guys were doing that 25 years ago mate just remember no matter what you do someone's probably done it before and that stuck with me for my whole life and it's like okay never going to say that i've done anything first before and and usually it's not got we're we're a long way down the path on this planet there's a lot of people have done a lot of things before we have the the oh, trick yeah. is not to be wanting to be the first to do something 
you want to be the first to teach someone else how to do that something. No one else has taught that guy to do that before or that girl to do that before. You can always be the first to give that knowledge to someone and you yeah. are first at that. You might be the first to do it, but but you've passed the knowledge on, you've shared the information and uh, and that that's what makes a lot of guys feel good. And that, the guys that are receptive to that, to the teaching, um, are the guys that do well. Got their ears open, yeah. got their minds open. Hmm. There you I go. totally agree. Yeah. It is a characteristic that you notice that, that makes a successful angle, even outside of tournaments, you know, guys that just uh, fish well, you know, they, uh, they're they usually pretty happy to share. Sometimes yep. they might be introverted to a degree, but I mean, it only takes a uh, a little bit of a, a commonality, I suppose, to open them up. And once they do, you know, most people, yep. yeah, it's, um, yeah, it's, it's a pretty interesting, that's, that's a, yeah, just an observation I've made, I guess, over the years between um, successful anglers. They're, um, yeah. The guys who are, uh, are super motivated, like you said, to win, you know, it might not necessarily be in a competition, but it might, you know, be even even recreationally, you know. Um, you know those guys don't seem to sort of um, blend in on the day, you know, it's for lack of yep. a better term, you know, which is... Oh, yeah, which yeah. is no, we've, we've seen them. They, they get a bit hot under the collar and they, they call it passion, but I just call it, you just, you, you just, you want it too hard, you know. And one thing in fishing, and, and I talk to, we talk about this a lot with Carl, is fishing is the losing of sport out there. You can be the best guy in the world at fishing and you can still only win like 5% of the tournaments you go in. When you're a tournament right. fisherman, you better get used to losing because even John Scott, I'll go back and look at John. John might have won in his prime every second or third tournament. It's like, you know, Usain Bolt was the fastest runner in the world. He didn't lose every second or third race. In tennis, in in the best the best in the world rarely lose in most sports. Mm. In fishing, the best in the world loses nearly always. They just yeah. their percentage keep, of keep winning is just up. slightly higher. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because they keep showing up. You know, it's uh... well because you're in a you're you're dealing with animals. In in the bass Mar in the Bassmaster in the US, for instance, there's a hundred guys there. Everyone's capable of winning it. It's just who can put it together on the day mentally. So the the best guys over there might have won twenty tournaments in their lifetime. And that's good enough for them to be the you know the best of all. Mm. It's you know very 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 few sportsmen are called the best of all time by only winning twenty times. Yeah, but in fishing that can happen. So it's it's it, you, you've got to be mentally prepared to to cop a fair flogging, even if you're good at it. And, yeah, and that's and that's a really good point to 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 wrap up on there, Steve. Too, do you ever see? Uh, potential either within ABT framework or, or you know, even as a standalone type circuit uh, for for fly fishing competitions. Or um, uh, the, I think it's there, yeah. but I, I I think it's it needs someone who's motivated enough to go and do it. Like there's only so many hours in my day, and my scope is is usually pretty full. But if if someone came along, and and I've done this lots over the years with guys in either different geographic areas or for different um, different things. We want, we want to run this sort of tournament. Can you run it? I said, well, no, we can't run it, but we can help you run it and we can help you get over the insurance costs and lend you some gear and do your stuff. So we've helped a lot of people over the years get up and going. Like the Hobie, the Hobie kayak fishing series, we, we ran that for them for the first two or three years when it, was, when it started off. And, you know, once they learned how to do it, they got on their own two feet and went and did it. And, and we're not jealous of that or that's not our competition. That's developing the industry, teaching more people to do it the right way 
is how you develop the industry. So, you know, there's a, there's an open invitation to anyone that, that thinks, you know what, Australia needs a fly fishing circuit. And and I'm not talking like the World Fly Fishing Championships like they have for the trout and that stuff. Yes. If South East Queensland needed, needs, a, needs a tuna circuit again, um, and it was it used to be run by four discrete clubs, I know it's hard to get four committees together to all get together and agree. But if some one person says, I want to make this happen, they should talk yeah. to me. I can, I can probably help them make it happen and they can benefit from all of the thousands of times we got things wrong. I can uh, yeah. give them the benefit of that experience and, uh, and help them avoid the costs and the mistakes of doing it along the way. That is a massive yeah. opening for someone really who's motivated enough and sees the, you know, the, the opportunity there to, to ignite. Well, I know, this, I know we talk about the four cons, but the, the three that were happening at the time, the, the old tuna circuit, Harvey yep. Bay, Sunshine Coast, Bribey, you know, if that happened up again, I mean, that was, that was so good for my development with tuna on fly fishing. Yeah. And when that was yep. happening, it was, I learned so, so much. Good. I rocked into that, not knowing anyone had no friends in fly fishing. It was, um, you know, a shop that I was going in was it encouraged me to go do it. And, uh, I ended up showing up and, mate, best move of my life for my yep. fly fishing career, that's for sure. So if you yeah, want to give other people that experience, then, hey, just you know, have a think about it and have a chat to us. And it's all, all it takes, and, and ABT proved that, you know, a, a guy and an idea, and if it's if it's got momentum, it'll it'll carry you along. So Yeah, 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 no, ab- absolutely. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, I mean, it's definitely definitely a possibility there. I mean, we spoke off, off screen, we, we tried to do that before. You and um, We met before doing that with the with certain clubs, with the, with a bass tournament and stuff, but it's just... um. I mean, it's it's it sort of waned for a bit there with uh, fly fishing tournaments, and it's sort of it's it's sort of fallen off the scale a little bit there. But I mean, the interest in fly fishing has has grown exponentially, that's for sure. And it's in yeah, in recent it's times, resurge. Yeah. yeah, and it's so uh, yeah, I mean, it might be the uh, it's you know the, the second wave. We all know about waves of things now, so. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yep. Except uh, we'll only be wearing buffs, no masks. So I that's guess. It, that's it. It. Well, you know, yeah. I must admit, my, my buff has saved me a few times when I haven't had my mask recently. It's been good. Yeah, I was doing a buff too. No one seemed to question me at all. <laughs> <laughs> Queensland's a bit different, though, I guess. But uh, you know, yeah. Anyway, here it is up on the sunny coast. People will be pretty lapsed about masks up here, by what I've seen. <laughs> anyway, yeah, yeah. Um, right. I will. Uh, I mean. We should look. We've been chewing you off for an hour and twenty now, Steve. We should probably wrap this puppy up, mate. But um, look, uh, this conversation's been great, mate. It's it's taken twists and turns I didn't expect it to, and I've I've learned a lot tonight. It's been um, it's been really interesting listening to you talk about this, and you know, again, really appreciate the time it's ta- uh, that you've that you've taken to talk to us, mate. No, happy days, mate. Who shares wins? There you go. There's, there's the motto for the night. Thanks for your time, Steve. Really appreciate it. No worries. Well, Jeff, here we are, back in the outro again, mate. Talk about a, uh, a detailed and verbose uh, show. That was great. I really enjoyed that, as you could tell from my lack of audio. Well, sometimes, you know, that's indicative of the, of the speaker's passion. Like, yeah. you know, really, Steve was – I really enjoyed having him on. He was a great speaker. Listen to him talk in the most humble way about, about you know, something that he's created from a vision. Mm. Um you know, it was really cool. I enjoyed it. I yeah. Really did. It was a pleasure talking to him. 
Yeah, 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 yeah. It really is. I think it's something to take away from it. You know, I mean, it, it, it's a, this is a a fly fishing show. We're talking about a, a tournament tournament scene that's you know heavily dominated by uh, by conventional gear. But yeah, I mean, there's been some legendary fly fishing techniques that have come out of it. You know, the, the bass on fly, Australian bass on fly uh, techniques that John developed that have that have come out of it have shaped yeah. bass fishing in Australia forever. You know, that the, there is only one way to do it. So, I mean, there's a lot to take out of it, but I guess the, the thing that uh, fly anglers can take out of this is, is I mean, we, this, is a, this is a common thing with our shows, really, when you look back on it, that we do try and um, uh, influence a mindset, you know, to, for successful angling, really. And that's, yeah. um, I mean, you've got, you've got people that are successful in life that re- almost reflect that in, in success in angling as well. Um, but not, you know, not, not many more situations highlight those successes than, than tournaments, Really, and that that mindset can be carried on to recreational fishing, you know, well and truly. That's for sure. So it's um yeah for me it was really interesting to, to listen to all those things. I I have I have competed in ABT tournaments, uh, but so it was interesting to hear the, the history of that that sort of stuff. But it was um, really interesting to hear the way Steve built it up. You know, like the I didn't know that he he travelled because he's right. Like you can't really go Google how they do these tournaments. He had to go and experience them and live them and. And then bring back uh, the combination of what he saw as what worked the best and what didn't work to create the ABT in Australia. Oh, wasn't that amazing? South yeah. Africa, Japan, US. You know, mm-hmm. like went to each of those places multiple times to, you know, to pull the essence out of it and, and bring it back. And you know, I, I liked. I didn't. I didn't make the comment during the during the um, the interview, but I particularly liked how he used the non-boater. Um, their their purpose is essentially twofold. You know, it, it acts as a um, a way of, you know, oversight of the of the boat, make sure that the rules are being followed, yeah. um, and you know, making sure that that is unquestioned. You know, that the, the the victor, you know, the winner can can have their their moment of glory without being questioned. Um, mm. And the other purpose of it is that the non the non boat, I guess, an opportunity they wouldn't normally have, and you know, they get an insight into. Um, into you know what goes into you know being a successful boater assuming you get paired with a you know an experienced one yeah so, but i mean the, the, yeah. sorry i didn't mean to inject there but i mean that just just i don't i used to see the non-boater as the uh, as the less skilled one as well but there's yeah. been a there's there's a lot of non-boaters that have um that have just you know kicked ass that's for sure you know but um, yeah. you know but uh you know like you speak to guys like alex alex troy who was you know, yep. he was right up there with that, with his ABT rankings, and he's uh, you know as a, as a brim fisher and stuff like that. And I've spoken to him before. I love getting in the mindset of that that tournament angling. Like those guys that can turn it on uh, for success. Because in my experience, you know, when I've done uh, elect bass electric comps and stuff like that, like my my I remember the first one that I was in uh, yeah. as an example, which will highlight my point. I, I fished that. I was my on my my lake that I know really well. First one I ever went in, and. Um, and I fished it a couple. You were allowed to fish it a couple of days before it, and all sort of stuff. And I knew where they were. I got on that lake, and that lake was like it may as well have been from outer space, you know, with all those boats on there, all those sounders, and all these people fishing techniques in places that they that oh, I'm like, oh, there's no. Oh, actually, I've never fished over there, and I'm watching these guys from out of town who've never fished it before and stuff like that. And it's just you're just like, holy shit, man, this is just a whole new world. So those that I always found it interesting that these guys that are consistent winners. You know their their mindset and what they're thinking, what they're what yeah. they're taking into the tournament, and not not so much with just with fishing, but 
in other sports that I've been involved in as well, there's definitely, you know, like, uh, uh, it's definitely all about mindset over skill. A skill comes into it for sure, but it's mindset, you know, and it's, um, yeah, uh, it, it really, it really, really is, you know, and, and those same guys can obviously turn it on recreationally as well, but it's, uh, you know, I, I just like to know that sort of stuff. Maybe for me, it's uh, a bit of a reassurance if you're having a, uh, having a, a day where you find it hard to, to adapt to your fishing scenario. But mm. um, but I mean that's what those guys that's 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 the mindset that, that they got to take into those tournaments to be the ability to adapt and um, and overcome to achieve the goal on the day. Oh yeah, yeah, it's amazing. You know, like I know myself if I'm having a, a bad day on a lake, you know, chasing Saratoga for example, I'm sort of faced with a choice: do I keep grinding one out? I'm confident I can grind less one out doing you know, doing what I normally do or just a slight variation of it, or do I spin it on its head? You know, and try something else to you know that i haven't previously done or a location i haven't done a technique i haven't done a fly i haven't used before you know like is that you know or am i just further away from something i knew that worked um are you just repeating an unsuccessful pattern who knows you know and, and that that mindset having a a um you know, a framework, a mental framework to, to f- fall back on is, is probably really important and something that's overlooked. Mm. Um, so, you know, I really enjoyed talking to Steve about that and it's something I'd like to explore maybe on a future podcast is try and, you know, as a theme we, we could explore with, um, you know, gun anglers. It doesn't have to be gun anglers, any anglers, actually. As Steve pointed out, you can learn something from everyone. Yeah. But uh, yeah, pretty, pretty cool stuff, eh? Yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I totally, yeah, totally, totally agree. I think you'll find, um, in in my experience, like it's, uh, I think you'll find there's a, a common denominator between between successful anglers. You know, with that 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 mindset, that's for sure. But, um, yeah. Uh, and without tournaments, these 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 things wouldn't be highlighted. They're they're a great place. I'd really like to see them come back into fly fishing. I really would. I think, uh, like we talked about on the show, there's a real opportunity for someone who can see the benefit. Uh, is, is motivated enough because I mean, with those, with the, I don't know what's, what really went on with those tournaments while they broke up. It's kind of, it was kind of like the, um, you know, I mean, clubs are still around, obviously, uh, and some clubs are doing really well, but clubs these days, fly fishing clubs, as, as what I mean, just aren't what they were in the mid 2000s to what they are now. They were, they were massive, they were bigger, like you, they were, they were. The social media, as if you like, you know, yeah. people would go there to find out what other people were doing and, and see the results the same way we scroll through and see results on social media now. So, I mean, uh, you know, but I guess there's probably been enough time passed now that the, um, you know, the buzz of social media is there. People were probably looking back towards hum- the actual human interaction, I guess you could say. I mean, the, the conventional yeah. gear tournament scene hasn't gone away because of social media or anything like that, but the fly fishing one seems to have waned quite a bit. How good would it be to have like uh, one organisation running, you know, Harvey Bay, Sunshine Coast, uh, and Bribey, you know, like a, a you know a February tournament, um, uh, a March end of March tournament, and and an end of April tournament, or even later, you know, March March April May, you know, that'd be yeah. that'd be ideal. Yeah, yeah, that, that'd be really interesting. It'd... Take out it's the triple a... crown, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that'd be pretty cool. Yeah. That would be really cool. Uh, I wonder how you'd run. I mean, you couldn't really do a non-boater in that scenario at all. I mean, you couldn't do a single fisherman either. You know, it's um, you would need to you'd need to act as a team with the long tail. That's for sure. I reckon mm-hmm. you'd need to know 
it had to be like similar probably to the Barra tournaments, you know, like he's saying that like they're they're not a non-boater tournament, they're a um they're a teams tournament. Yep. Yeah. You know? So you know, be... I couldn't, couldn't see it working any other way. You know, like th- theoretically, if you've got a boat, um, and we, it is a team sport. You know, mm. there's there's no other way to cut it. Um, the the, the problem with our tournaments, though, I reckon, is just that, it, 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 like, it doesn't encourage it encourages a social gathering. I'm, I'm going to say something here that might be really, really controversial, and it might piss some people off, but. Yeah, that's 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 just the thing I admire with the ABT ABT tournament. There's no, no one's pulling any punches as far as you know. Although the the atmosphere is there is um, who shares wins. At the end of the day, it's a performance based tournament where the best angler on the day or the most consistent angler through a through a series of tournaments is rewarded for, for his efforts. And and it's not about the person who wins. I mean, for for the fishing industry and in particular the fly fishing industry. What that what that's doing there is it's encouraging those people that didn't win to 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 do better next year and work on their technique and get better, you know. Whether and and obviously hopefully that would get shared amongst anglers and everyone would be benefiting from that level of competition. Yeah. But it's just not it's just not there. And like when you have tournaments that people get prizes for just showing up, it's just you know like where you know like I mean you can come away from some of these comps with. With some fantastically fantastic monetary prizes, where you're just like, oh, I didn't win. I had a great time on the piss with my friends, but I got this wicked esky, you know, or something like that. You know, it's, <laughs> yeah. you know, I, got, I, I end up getting a, you know, like I come, away, I, I didn't catch a fish, but I come away with a full, full rod. You know, how cool is that? What a weekend! But imagine if you come away with diddly squat because you just weren't good enough. I mean, sure, yeah. it's, a, it's a little bit of a slap in the face, but you know like it, and there's going to be people that don't show up but the people that are going to show up are people who are like you know I reckon I'm good enough to do this and yeah. then um and those people are going to have that that personality to show up the next year if they didn't win to try and win and probably several years after that which would encourage other people that thing but you know I think that would do for the industry is that you'd start to have people that are showcasing like you'd be interested oh that guy that guy's won two or three times a year you know like what what's he doing you know what's he doing what no one's interested no yeah. one's interested in that in the in the existing flight tournaments right now you know, it's 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 just it's just sitting. It's just they're just surviving. They're just sitting there, you know, doing doing nothing. You know, really in the, the day. I mean, they're great great causes. Some of them are charity based and so like that. Don't get me wrong. I realise that people look forward to them every year for social gathering. But I guarantee you, man, there's none of those. Probably there's probably an element of social gathering with the ABT, but no one's entering a comp for their annual get together. You know, mm. in in ABT, I would imagine. Could be really wrong, but just it seems like seeing on the outside looking in. I just think there's a lot, lot, a lot the industry can and the sport can benefit from competition. I really do. Yep, yep. That's where the pens, pens get sharpened, so to speak. It's yeah, it's it's the pointy end of um, of development. Mm. Man, I'd I'd man, I'd really love to be that person who could put those comps together and have the time and and stuff like that. But you know. With a full-time business and and um, and and this podcast, man, that's um, that's it for me. Eh? That's yeah, you know, family and trying to squeeze fishing time in top of that. It's uh, pretty hard. But for someone who's you know, it's got a job and you know, got a couple of hours in the afternoon every now and then, and they want the support of the intermediate line. I'm sure we'd support and oh, advertise definitely. and do that sort of stuff. You know, it's, yeah, uh, it's a real yeah. opportunity going begging there. And even if someone saw um, uh, financial gain out of doing it, even you know, I'm sure that'd be there as well. You know, yeah. For somebody who wants to set it up that way, anyway. Have a chat to Steve about it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Not me. 
That's um, Steve. Steve. Someone else have a chat to Steve about it. <laughs> yeah. 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 But yeah, man. It's uh, I mean, how good would it be for you to be um, world champion and triple crown champion, right? <laughs> Did that? I thought you fished the first Bribe tournament. I thought that's where you got the world champion title from. No, no, no. That was just um, uh, that was two thousand and three. I won my first one. Um, yep. So I won three in total. Um, team and angler. Um, that's a the Bribe one. I won um, Harvey Bay one, the Brisbane one, and uh, the Sunshine Coast one once. So yeah, right. I got that. Um, I got that. It, that uh, the Sunshine Coast one had this fun category for um, for um, shit that just went wrong. The Crazy Charlie Award. Yep. Yeah, and you know people would win it. Like I think Jackson Mars won it once for falling asleep on the boat or some shit. You know, there's always some dumb stuff that happens. Someone launched a boat without a bilge or without their, uh, you know, their bungs in or something like that. You know, and um, and I won it one year for, for getting a, a, a hook through my thumb and having to go to um, the emergency department for, to get it out. Yeah, so I was there that year. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. What year was that? That would have been like, what, like maybe 2005? Six? I can't remember, mate. Yeah, would have would have been, oh, yeah, been in uh, between two thousand five and two thousand and ten, somewhere in there. Okay, yep, yeah, somewhere around there. It's um, yeah, man, it's uh pretty good. I've always I've been the bridesmaid at that at that tournament four times now. It's uh, oh wow, I've done the teams, done the teams. I've never never placed at Bribey, but ah, uh, sorry, Harvey Bay, but um, yeah, I've been been a teams teams champion twice at Bribey and and uh and runner up and runner up at four times at the sunny coast but teams champion uh, i think we got on the team i can't mm. remember twice or something like that but yeah man i really would like to have won that sunny coast one but um but uh i don't think that's going to happen anymore uh, it took me three guys to win that one mm. yeah oh well you know but it's been um uh, yeah like i said with steve i i don't need to win you know, it's a deeply personal thing. I don't need to win, but I don't like coming last. That, that's just you know part of my makeup. Um, but yeah, it, I enjoy I enjoy the fishing part of it. I enjoy the social bit, obviously. Yeah. Uh, and I enjoy I do enjoy sharing. You know, I do enjoy talking to the other people there and sharing the experience with them. And um, yeah, I, that I, presentation, not the night in between. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, yeah, exactly right. I mean, like uh, there was a, the Quinney Memorial Tournament was um was a good one like that as well. Um, yeah, that, yeah, that was a good sharing opportunity. That was probably a participation style one. You know, yeah, like it wasn't entirely merit based. There was a category for it from from memory, like most meritorious catch. But yeah, I I won that the first year. And that was um that was it was a it was a peer based vote of um, the most meritorious catch. Yep. But, um. Didn't win it the next year. Yeah. Bit of controversy would... there, but, uh, you know. <laughs> you know, I'm talking about Gazza, don't you? <laughs> when we have Gazza on to talk, talk about his purple-headed gudgeons, we can ask yeah. him about the uh, about what what that comp meant to him. Yeah. Yeah. Gazza was one of the great um, competitors, too, in, in a lot of those things. He'd, he'd really bring the passion, passion mm. along, eh? 
So yeah, exactly. Well, we did. Uh, I mean, we did it. You know, like uh, I was. We sort of briefly talked about it on the air there, but <clears throat> when I was the president of the Sunny Coast Club, that um, I started the Bass on Flight tournament, as you know, you were compete. You competed in it as well. Yeah. And that was um, and that was straight away from the format of participation prizes. You know, I um. And you know the industry jumped on it. BLA gave us uh, an electric, uh, a Minn Kota to auction off. Gale Force gave us a boat. We had yeah. fly lines from Mayfly. Um, it was yeah, staggering. Fly, the industry support was yeah. Oh, it was incredible. Like you know, I was involved with um, you know rallying these uh, sponsored prizes and stuff like that. And everyone was like, this this sounds fantastic. They seem to be all sort of um, you know uh, you know sick of the sick of the the old format. I guess you could say you know and. Um, yeah, everyone, everyone jumped on it, mate. It was great. It was very unsatisfying for me to to win that own tournament that um that organised, but um <laughs> sure, you know, mate. Yeah, so, well, well, I wasn't cool because I, I organised <laughs> the boat. The boat was a lucky door prize, you know, because um there was yeah. a, there was there was probably about forty guys in it. It was a big turnout for a first a first tournament. It was a it was, a, yeah. it was anyway, and um so I organised the the Minn Kota, the, the um the the Riptide. Um, electric motor was the major prize that set up there. Yeah, man. I think I think a few people probably called shenanigans, eh? But um, but I didn't weigh well, my own fish in. Let's put it that way, you know. Well, let's put it this way: like through the involvement of the ABT, there was um, there was uh, you know, like a, a foolproof system for for which to measure the fish, you know. Yeah, that's right. So that's exactly yeah. right. So that's where I met Steve. I went down. I got the ABT scales. We got we got the ABT's points scoring system. We did everything for ABT. We did we did live live weigh-ins and um and released it and had a had a, a person that was allocated to, to to you know you hand the fish to and weighed it and yep, I competed in like every other competitor and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, so it's yeah. um then I won look, it the next look, year as Steve well he, and I didn't win a motor. Steve competes in his own. Yeah, well, there you go. Yeah, yeah. yeah so yeah. I probably shouldn't feel too bad, but no, yeah. look if yeah I I don't think I don't think anyone could reasonably accuse anybody of any wrongdoing under those circumstances you know like it was pretty clear the rules were crystal clear and you if you know you show up with your two fish your best two fish and the heaviest bag wins right so yeah um yeah well you come second at that comp didn't you yeah i came second one big bass i got a was there a rod oh uh, a rod there you sure you won big bass we've been through this before man remember i end up sending you a photo of the uh, trophy oh right okay yep I think yeah. I won it the next. I got big bass and champion angler next year. Then I'm, I'm sure yeah. I won it one year, but big bass. But um, it doesn't matter. Just casually, yeah. I, I did win it the next year too. I just have I mentioned that? Did you? Yeah, yeah. Cool, yeah. man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, as you can tell, we're high achievers on this podcast. Yeah, we got big, big dicks. Massive, you know? yeah. Yeah, massive dicks and balls too. Yeah, yeah. I, I might yeah. even post up a couple of trophies online tomorrow. I don't know. Feeling cute, <laughs> who knows? That's uh, a. <laughs> <laughs> just do it in your insta stories mate That's, what i might uh, yeah. do is just um relieve the tension and put up the uh the tuna t- the tournament tuna comp champion angler trophy i won from bass <laughs> <laughs> always a good laugh for my my expense yeah it's good yeah. That we can laugh with ourselves I, I, i'll give you something i went in the very first abt barracon bay um up yeah. at wonga and yeah. um I donutted badly, really badly. I eh? came dead last, and there were a few people on donuts. Yeah. Um, How did you come last than people that didn't catch anything? Oh, because my surname, right? It's right down the. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, because if you're six foot six and you come, you know, your donut is worse yeah. than someone who's like five foot seven. Oh yeah, donut. exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So like you would have been in a in a crowd full of losers and head and shoulders above all of them. Like the I was looking loser. down on them all. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And the biggest loser is <laughs> the man with the pelt. <laughs> And you, you'd be yelling back to the dude going, it's actually more of a fleece. <laughs> <laughs> it takes a lot of care and it's full of lanolin. <laughs> yeah, so no. yeah. oh, I mean, I, I really, I, I hope, I wonder if this podcast, I hope, I if it will inspire someone to, to take it up, man. Imagine next year or. You know, if, if the if the, if the clubs got together and formed a, an interclub committee to, to do this or something like that, but well, you know, for just so people know too, the um, there is a tri interclub thing between the Gold Coast, Brisbane, and Sunny Coast clubs up at Inskip Point in mid middle of June, but it's a friendly. It, like, there's nothing wrong with that. But has yeah, ever the, been a comp though? Really? Like, I've never seen a presentation at any, any of those I've been to or anything like that. It's just been. Knows, yeah. But I, just I, been I, a get together. Yeah, yeah, and you know, it's good that people are out there talking. Yeah, you know, talking to talk. Um, but you know, yeah. I tell you, I tell you one comp that went on at that comp one year, eh? <laughs> yeah, what? There was a casting tournament, I believe, at the uh, Carlton. <laughs> <tournament. laughs> just, I'm just well, while we're listing tournaments, we've won. Uh, <laughs> I believe I won that tournament as well. I competed against one of the world's best casters. Jackson Mars. <laughs> Beat him. No need to compete against him again. <laughs> I know he doesn't listen to this show, but I know that every time I make that comment, it gets back to him at the same time. Yeah. Someone will ring him. Hey, yeah. mate, you need to have a listen to this last one. Yeah. They bring, yeah. Your, they bring your name up again, Jacko. <laughs> And there's a, there's a reason why I brag about it so much because Jackson is such a powerhouse caster, and uh, the yeah. trick to beating Jackson at any any comp is to feed him full of piss first. But put yourself on the same playing field and drink just as much piss. <sighs> trick to it. Yeah. Well, it was yeah. a dark night that night. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, the, yeah. The, there was a lot of light reflecting off that pleather, you know. Yeah. Yeah. It's, but uh, yeah. we could see the end of his cast, so. Someone says he couldn't cast out of sight on a dark night. Simply not true. Nah, yeah. it, was, it wasn't like that. I, I remember the situation. It was uh, we were casting towards the light, and someone was standing right where the casts were finishing up, and measured the two next to each other, and gone, "Nah, sorry, Jack." I do remember he put in a formal request, a formal, uh, a formal dispute. You know, and yeah. I quickly got uh, drowned out by the laughter. I believe. <laughs> Well, it's it's like the eighty-two. You, you got to win on the day, right? It's no yeah. no good. You know, you, you get your chance at redemption if the other party wants to show up. But, well, I, I believe you had you three know. chances. Actually, still couldn't do it, but that's cool. <laughs> no big deal. It wasn't exactly a one-cast competition. <laughs> <laughs> not, right. a big, not a big deal. It's just that we've been talking about tournaments. You know, it's not something you'd bring up on every show, maybe every six months or something. You know what I love about this outro? It's stuff to all hang out towards the end, eh? Yeah, we get tired. Yeah. yeah. Tired and bitter. Yeah. I'm not bitter. <laughs> not at all, man. Not at uh, all. Hey, um, all. should we hang 
Hankshin on Radliff this week or what? J Dog. Yeah. What's he done? Nothing. That's a problem, you know. No, no yeah. tilapia were killed this week. <laughs> I think he broke a rod on the weekend. Oh, that's true. <laughs> that's true. Yeah. But anyway, we'll we'll leave that one alone. Yeah, we don't know how he did it. No. Yeah. Well, well, Volts, it's been another it ripper, ripper show. Um, what's your sign out this week again, mate? Is it uh, who dares wins? Yeah, who dares wins? Yeah. Who shares wins, mate? Yeah, that too. Yep. Well, yeah. all right. Well, like, I hope, hope you guys got something from it tonight, and I hope that someone starts the competitions back up. And, uh, yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, would. The, the invita- in, in, intermediate line invitational. Invitational? It's open to everyone, man. Yeah, exactly. That's the invite. All comers. Everyone. Yeah. <clears throat> with a point to prove. Or whatever. <laughs> yeah. We just have to point out, uh, have to make it very clear that, that Mac Tuna, in fact, do have all Mac Tuna, no matter where they are in the country, have three little black spots under their pectoral fin. If it doesn't have that, it's a frigate mackerel. And that's one of the biggest uh, problems with the tuna comps, right? Hey? Fish ID. Fish ID. Must need a photo. Should, that's what that's what would change it, eh, I reckon, is... um. Everyone's got a brag mat. Doesn't matter about the length of it. Just need to have a token that's issued to you on the day. Put it down next to it. Even take take a photo of holding a long tail. I guess the only I wonder how you get around that. Like to stop people from turning around at a different angle and taking the fit, uh, picture of the same fish. Well, I guess stamp. it comes. Huh? Mm. Oh, each photo would have a timestamp. So yeah. Oh, hold a phone up next to it or something like that, like a some a, a phone device. Everyone's got a phone. You could take a photo with the the phone on the you know like the um the time. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. That'd be that'd be the go for sure. But again, even if it didn't, you couldn't do that. At the end of the day, mate, if you wanted to, if you need a trophy that bad, I I just reckon feel free to fill your fill your boots to cheat. That's I, I encourage people to cheat if they want a trophy that bad. Do it. <laughs> you can also go to the shop and buy one. Yeah, do that. Yeah. Don't ruin it, everyone else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I actually admire those people that cheat that um, that, that end up beating you. You know. <laughs> Enough. I really do. Yeah. It's a, it's a skill. It's a it's a it's a mindset. You know. Oh, so yeah, bro. Do we'll see you next Tuesday? <laughs> All right. Act. Let's go. All right. No worries, man. All right. Well, thanks again, Vols. Thanks for joining me this week. And, um, and and thank me for joining you and I'll um, talk to you soon thanks for joining me Chris thanks See for joining you, me Vault catch up what do you think of jet skis <laughs>